Welcome to iPad Pros, the show all about using your iPad to be productive and get work done. I'm Tim Chen, host of the show. Kind of freaked out. It was the reason I knew that this was going to be a great release was when I saw that the same custom keyboard shortcut manager from the Mac version was in the iPad version. You know, it's the same thing you would expect, like if you're running Pro Tools or Logic or any one of these programs that has such an advanced feature set that they allow you to take any small little task, you know, that you might do and then add a key command to it. Welcome to another episode of iPad Pros. This is a moment in the iPad's history I've been dreaming about since we first got the iPad back in 2010. The day is finally here. Some 11 years later, we now have true professional desktop class music notation software on the iPad. Through not just one app, but two. This, as you can see by the runtime of the episode, will be the longest and most in-depth episode of the podcast to date. Robbie Burns, who is a music educator that uses these tools for his work, joins me to discuss the arrival of Sibelius and Dorico for iPad. These are two of the biggest music notation applications out there, and they have finally ported them to the iPad. And not as little companion apps, but instead bringing the full power of the desktop app experience to the iPad. This is comparable to if Apple brought Final Cut Pro to the iPad and did so in a way that it was the actual full-fledged application. For those that don't know my background, in college I studied music composition and have spent I don't know how many thousands of hours writing music in finale. Well, finally, that same experience I cut my teeth on in high school and college is here on the iPad. And it really is a groundbreaking moment for this vertical of professionals that include composers, arrangers, music engravers, music educators, and others that use this kind of software for their work. As we'll talk about in this episode, Apple's move to the M1 chip on the Mac encouraged the Dorco team to take that leap to make this a reality on the iPad. This shared chip architecture is already benefiting the iPad, and I hope this is just the beginning and other professional markets will make the same realization and port their desktop class apps to the iPad. With that said, I just want to remind everyone that you can now financially support iPad Pros in two different places. First off, patreon.com slash iPad Pros. Get episodes early and with embedded MP3 chapter markers by supporting the podcast at any tier. Bonus content is also available at the higher tiers. You can also now subscribe to iPad Pros in Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is an all-inclusive, single subscription. So you'll get all of the bonus content plus episodes early by subscribing to the show in Apple Podcasts. By default, subscriptions are monthly, but if you go into your subscription settings in the Settings app, you can switch it to a yearly plan. My thanks to everyone that currently or has in the past supported the podcast financially. This podcast is not a quick one to produce, especially this episode, and your support is greatly, greatly appreciated. You can also support the podcast for free simply by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. No matter your region, it really does help. The reviews help send the right signals to Apple to show this podcast more in search, helping others discover the show. If you have a minute today, I'd really appreciate you opening up the podcast app and leaving a review. My thanks to everyone that has already done that. With that, here's my discussion with Robbie, all about the rival of Dorco and Sibelius for iPad. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm super excited for this conversation. Um, before we get to 
uh, what this conversation is. Can you just kind of introduce yourself and how you use the iPad? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm Robbie Burns. I'm a musician and percussionist and educator in Maryland. Uh, I teach middle school band and general music in the Howard County Public School System, which is uh, one of the one of the many uh, counties in uh, in Maryland. And you know, some some school systems would call these like districts. Uh, we organize by counties. And uh, there in Howard County, I am pretty involved, uh, both with extracurricular county music opportunities, like I co-direct the middle school honor band here. And then outside of the school day, uh, I have a big private teaching studio where I teach percussion. Percussion is the instrument that I've studied uh, the most of my life. And it is uh, something that I stay really active and engaged doing through gigging and freelancing, but lately in my life more often through private teaching. Uh, I've got about 20 private students who take lessons with me in my studio, most of whom are also members of the same school district that I teach in because this is also just happens to be the, the area that I live. So uh, in addition to that, I am an author, blogger, and podcaster and make resources for music teachers and do a whole lot of stuff involving uh, using technology to be more productive and creative in the music classroom. Excellent. And do you follow your kids past uh, middle school, like uh, into high school teaching as well? Yeah, I follow my middle school students from the time that they start with me until they graduate high school. And what that looks like for some of them is that they study with me even before their school might offer an instrument as a class. So I've, I've had students um, as early as, you know, the second and the first grade, in which case we're doing very, very different things than I might do with a fourth or a fifth grader. Uh, and then, yeah, I follow them as long as they continue to take lessons with me, you know, up until they turn 18 and graduate high school, at which case many of them will go on to do things musical, but many of them will also not go on to do things musical. And, you know, what that process looks like is different for every kid. But yeah, I certainly have a really large and diverse studio here. And uh, I follow them. I mean, part part of the what I take pride in is just being able to like in a way that you can't in a middle school classroom, you can't really like take a performing musician and have... Uh, control over how they're learning something from the very very first stages so right. to be able to yeah to, to be able to develop that uh with someone and then follow it all the way through to the point where you can actually like you know see them off to starting their own career in music built on those foundations that you started them with is a real rewarding process yeah i vividly remember my middle school band teacher and the private teachers i had back then and yeah, it's a very influential part in your life, and it's it must be really rewarding in that way. And with percussion, that's always been – I'm a wind guy. I play mostly woodwinds, a little bit of brass. Yeah. And uh, percussion, it's like – it's like many it's it's like a whole section versus like i play the woodwinds versus like i play saxophone you know it's uh that like a studio of that you must have like a basin just filled with like you got mallets and like snare drums and like what's that look like yeah so I, i'm actually down here now so i've got my whole like computer technology desk set up with lots of you know uh, gear midi controllers microphone and an interface and all sorts of other things uh and then as i sort of turn around me to my left i have uh a, a, you know, like a resource library of method books and books and uh, scores and all sorts of uh, musical resources. Uh, and then to the left of that is all of my wind instruments, like my horn, trumpet, trombone, saxophone, clarinet, flutes, um, concert snare drum, crash cymbals, a vibraphone, a five octave marimba, four timpani, uh, some bongos and congas, uh, glockenspiel, a second marimba, and then um, a grand piano, well, not a, a grand grand piano, but like a full-size MIDI piano and then some yeah some string instruments uh hanging on the wall here as well some that's awesome guitars and, and uh mandolins and things and basses so yeah it's it's full it's um just full of instruments and it's a real good time yeah i love the marimba and as uh, a kid and even into college a vibraphone was a guilty pleasure instrument of mine 
you should so my marimba you can cut this out if, if you want if it's not relevant to your listeners but so are you familiar with janice potter i'm not no so she is um a just an internationally recognized and respected performer and educator and when she switched so she is, was using an adams instrument which is like uh you know like a company um that's part of pearl who makes drums mm-hmm. drum sets and uh adams is like their classical division and for a long time she was touring with an adams instrument you know and part of her deal with them was i think that she would you know they would always like they would have certain things that they would provide for her and then she would always like play on one of their instruments when she would tour and do master classes and and you know all this kind of stuff and uh you know something happened in that relationship she decided to work with a an up-and-coming company that was like designing their marimba she was trying to help them make it sound better uh and for whatever reason she needed to sell her most recent adam's marimba and so i was at the time looking and she was living in the same area that i was and so yeah i have janice potter's five octave marimba and she actually the cool thing is that she handpicked every single bar from the adams factory to make sure that they all like just perfectly speak uh, and resonate and then actually i have two it's great yeah i have two actually a touring set too i have like a set in boxes that where she also handpicked <laughs> that's amazing it's <laughs> amazing yeah ah yeah. Uh, yeah so Today's episode, we're going to focus mainly on the very exciting news and releases of Dorco and Sibelius for iPad, uh, both of these being very pro-level apps, and they're now on iPad, and it kind of is opening a brand new you know, vertical of professionals that can now work on iPad that couldn't yesterday. Or they could, but it'd be with some other tools that may not be as feature-rich or you know, provide the experience we're quite looking for. Um, and we'll get into what some of the, the, those apps um, are that are still really good um, as well. But before we do that, how do you use the iPad, both as a music educator and kind of in your day-to-day life? Yeah, good question. I, As I was thinking through this, I think that this, like how I use the iPad could potentially be a theme throughout this conversation. Um, because I think that the two apps that we're going to, I think, dominantly talk about sort of, sort of like outline this, this theme. There's, there's kind of like different ways that I use the iPad and I, I sort of can divide it into two, generally speaking, two categories. And one of them is like the iPad as this like modular piece of hardware that can like sort of, you can like take, take it off of the keyboard stand. You can use it with the pencil. You can use it in your hand. You can read it like a book. You can put it on the keyboard and then use it more like a laptop and so this sort of like in this modular sense of being able to attach it to a keyboard and having it run super similar software to what I'm using on my Mac, which is, you know, a lot of um, first and third party productivity pieces of software, um, other kinds of creative and professional musical tools, like things that uh, when you have a similar enough experience on the mobile version and the desktop version, it, the iPad almost just becomes like a different window into the same data that I'm interacting with on the Mac. So uh, in that sense, very, very Mac-like, but I, leveraging some of the things that make the iPad the iPad. And then there's this other sort of part of the coin, which I think has gotten a lot of uh, attention lately, which is like this idea of what kinds of apps really make the iPad an iPad. And uh, that's obviously arguable because like I was just saying, you know, like I can use it in many cases to be a productivity machine, much like I use my desktop computer, but uh, the iPad does when you detach it from the keyboard and and handle it directly with your hand or with an Apple pencil, it can become kind of like this piece of paper. And I would say that in the classroom, in my, uh, in, in that part of my life responsibilities, there's unfortunately not as much software I'm interacting with on a day-to-day basis that I can control 
like when I'm, uh, you know, editing like my blog and my podcast or like when I'm like typing an email, like I can control what email app I use, what note taking app I use, what kinds of like workflows and, you know, automations are going to really, really help me to excel. But like at school, I have like a lot of web-based software that I'm depending right. on. So there's not, yeah, there's not always quite as much control for me there. So the iPad often tends to fit a little bit more into the place of like the digital piece of paper. So I'm doing things on it, like running sheet music and the app for score, uh, annotating sheet music, you know, uh, putting notes for class or, uh, you know, on a note and then like annotating them. What I like to do is actually take a seating chart with all my band students on it and then take informal notes on them during class. Uh, so usually in class, I'll have like the four score with my music on one half of the iPad screen and then good notes on the other half of the screen with a seating chart or maybe some, uh, I'll use it as a digital whiteboard sometimes and like project a blank white good notes note to the projector behind Mm me. Um, so there's, you know, those are the kinds of things. It's kind of like, I think it's getting, um, I'm, I'm pushing it, you know, to the platform's highest level of potential when it's in that, like in front of me on a music stand yeah. in rehearsal. Gotcha. Yeah. And something I discovered when setting up my podcasting focus with iPadOS 15 is how really kind of cool the uh, web app kind of experience is uh, on iPad. Like I was saving um, to the home screen, the WordPress page for iPad pros to do the posting of the site. When I did that, it's like, oh, it's a separate app when I launch it now. It's like separated from Safari and the the app switcher. So I'm not sure if that's something you played around with with some of those school apps of having these different like kind of in the app launcher, at least these kind of separate little web apps for school. That's that's a really good point. Yeah, I track podcast analytics for my own show using Libsyn and I have made a little Libsyn app on my iPhone in that same way you just described. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed a lot of those same behaviors make it feel more like an app and less like a website. And yeah, so I have not yet considered it's it's always this juggling match with like how well is I don't want to throw the iPad under the bus here. But it's like sometimes the iPad Safari doesn't always handle some of these education websites as well as yes. the desktop but it's not even a really it's sometimes like there isn't a web browser in the whole world that'll handle these websites they're just kind of bad yeah <laughs> web apps yep. so mileage may vary so i you know like for example canvas which is our learning management software like they have an ipad app that affords lots of you know like they designed it with a lot of the same things that you're used to if you've used like the iWork suite so it's got like really similar UI elements like back buttons in most places uh the you know like the list views all use like the same font and scroll really smoothly and things are very responsive but it's missing the most important thing that I do in Canvas which is look at the grades kind of like an excel spreadsheet like in a grid view like with yeah. columns and rows and like there's no way to input a grade into the iPad version of the app this way uh, so yeah it's funny yeah. with some web apps it's like a balance of oh should I use the website or the native app and sometimes you'll switch back and forth between them Google's a great example of this sometimes oh the native apps are for this one thing and then yeah uh it's a it's a thing I, that's like that's the perfect example because right when I'm on the th- that is actually something that we use a lot of in my work environment and when I'm on my desktop I wouldn't imagine using them as apps even if they were available to me because they sort of feel you know native to the web right uh, and and you know web browsers are really kind of like point and clicky and precise and accurate with all their buttons and, and knobs and whistles and things on a desktop whereas on iOS, yeah, it's like I've got desktop class Safari now, so I can interact with it and I want to interact with it in that way. But then the apps are just like polished a little nicer and kind yeah, of like. And we have a trackpad now, so even the web browser has some. Yeah, and even the app can take advantage of that, but sometimes they don't really do that yet if it's on a great app. So, yeah, it's it's a complicated thing. Complicated thing. Uh, so, 
I graduated college in 2010, so I had the iPad for all of like three or four months before I was out of school, and it was a new and exciting thing, and um, it's now been like a decade. Uh, what's the iPad like in the music scene these days? Is it being used on music stands as sheet music is that widespread now or what's what's the kind of the situation yeah when when i saw that you wanted to ask this question i i feel like there's a couple different angles i could answer it i mean if you want to talk about i guess i'll address teachers first like teachers have some amount of autonomy yeah what kinds of tools they're using in their life to get their work done so it it is very very common these days to see uh any kind of like musical performer or teacher working with an iPad as at the least some kind of device for reading and annotating sheet music. Um, I've really in the past five years seen it take off a lot of my colleagues who thought I would like, I mean, eight, nine years ago, I was like this crazy person with an iPad air and four score <laughs> at the concert yeah. reading off of, and everyone was like, what is happening? And now I'm, I'm seeing more of that go on. And uh, you know, whether or not teachers take it farther than that, like to the extent that we're talking about with, you know, using it more like to get professional work done, like a laptop or with automation or, or any of these kinds of things. You know, it's kind of varied teacher per teacher, but most teachers are very, very comfortable with some of those kinds of basics. So I do see it a lot more lately. For me, you know, I'm always trying to do more with mine, but in the classroom, uh, we have that kind of like web based software thing we were talking about before, but it's also kind of tied into like, what the students are doing, like because all of our software is web-based, it's more equitable and cross-platform. So it's more basically more accessible to a wider variety of the students that we serve in our district. Um, but this, of course, means that the best and most affordable device to get them a window into all that stuff that's going on is a Chromebook. So I, you know, I I see that students, at least in the public school system, are using iPads less than I had maybe thought 10 years ago we would see. Mm-hmm. The Chromebook has, has really sort of, it's really sort of taken the place because of the reasons I just stated, you know, like having yeah. this, I it's mean, cost is one thing. It's yeah. cheap, right. But also I think like the equity of web-based software and just how, you know, I thought that web soft, web-based software was eventually going to die. And that has like been like the most dead wrong assumption I had 10 years ago about where apps <laughs> were going. Yeah. Well, the chat about Sibelius on the web, I'm, I'm so curious if you know anything about that. Well, the, when that, when we get to Sibelius, I, I'm curious how the feature parity is between the different platforms because it surprised me that they advertised, oh, you can use Sibelius on the web to write music. It's like, okay. I think that'll tie in a little bit to one of your next questions coming up too. But I mean, it, it's interesting. Like my students don't get to kind of use, I mean, th- this has been sort of a thing for me is like I, the iPad is like definitely a device that I use for teacher facing experiences and software that sometimes make my students' lives better. But for the most part, our digital interaction is happening through web stuff. Um, and this is just maybe a sort of a meta point. I don't know if if this fits quite into your question or not, but I think it's just interesting to see, especially with the last year, how much uh, bargaining on, you know, how, how much payoff there has been through sort of having all of these educational offerings through the web, you know, when we needed to basically have them in order to be able to communicate with each other. Right. Uh, and then ha- having these low price Chromebooks so that we could get them into every kid's hands. It's just been super, you know, it was like super useful for us this past year. But then on the other end of the coin, I'm wondering, like, what if what if Apple's vision had had one day taken, you know, had sort of taken off in an alternate universe? Because Apple, Apple's approach is they do have a learning, some, like a learning management, you know, kind of piece 
to their to their puzzle. It's like they've got they a classroom, and you can you know deploy them. I don't know actually if you've have you ever had anyone on the show who does deployment of iPads yeah. in the classroom? Yeah, we have talked a little bit about that in the past. Yeah, Apple's just taken a very like in the same way that a lot of things that are happening on the web with other services are things that happen on device for Apple. They've taken a very like sort of app centric approach to education where it's like, okay, well we want you to write a native app and then we'll give you the tools to make an API where you can like integrate those apps into Apple classroom. And that's just very much not proven to be the most pervasive thing in education as much as open web standards have been. Yeah. And I'll be curious if Apple ever uh, makes better use of open web standards to make it as another option for the iPad, if you did get that alternative. Sure. Because um, they don't support web apps amazingly well. They could do a lot more with that, as others have pointed out in various lawsuits against Apple. Um. <laughs> right, right. So uh, what is your actual iPad setup? Okay. Uh, I am working with a 12.9-inch iPad Pro from 2018. I am mm-hmm. using the Magic Keyboard and the Apple Pencil, and I... Do you want to know like uh, like software too in that question or um yeah anything general else about the iPad um we should probably touch on it now before we move on to the meat of the show of music notation yeah I mean I think the best way to categorize um my setup on the iPad is that it is generally kind of like set up with the Magic Keyboard um but I kind of you know carry it around that way but then I rip it off fairly frequently when I'm on the couch or uh, if I'm moving around a lot more. Uh, and we'll use the Apple Pencil. We we could certainly talk for two hours about just task management alone if we wanted to. So <laughs> <laughs> that should probably think, be a different show. Yep, different episode. Uh, probably sh- probably should be a different one. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, just you know, any just to speak to the iPad before we get into the notation stuff, like. I, I thought that before WWDC this past year, maybe that the iPad was going to go in a different direction. And it seems it seems like what Apple wants to do with the iPad is really continue to double down on iPad OS as sort of like flexing unique strengths. Mm-hmm. I do think that far off into the future, you know, there will be ways in which Mac OS and iPad OS continue to, you know, where there's more of a story to um, to be told about because I think it's like the elephant in the room constantly, right? Like when I, like I was saying earlier, when my iPad is plugged into the Magic Keyboard, it, it's frustrating that it doesn't really do some things that a piece, like, a, like a Mac could do or like run certain apps that a Mac could run like Ableton Live or Logic Pro. So I, I'm curious to see where that story goes. I don't think the story is over, but, I, you know, I mean, some people were saying like, will, will like Mac OS apps run on the iPad now that it's got the M1 chip and, you know, that you can plug it into like a thunder you know with use, use a thunderbolt port and things and like get a nice big display plugged into it you know i i don't know that i think that that's the direction the ipad is going so while maybe a couple of months ago i was expecting a little bit more to just try to go all in on the ipad as my one singular device i would say that this next school year i'm very much looking forward to kind of combining some of these new web experiences that have entered in the classroom through covid with just kind of like really flexing my iPad as like this really fantastic touch device that can be whatever I need it to be in any context. Yeah, I mean, the Mac is so much legacy code. Like these apps, as we'll talk about finale as just a mention because it's one of the older ones it's like 30 30 plus years old or something 32 years old i don't know i gotta look up it's in well well when we hit it it's in the notes of i looked up how old and there's so much legacy code that like i don't think every mac app could run on the ipad 
without those Mac apps being modernized in huge ways. So I think that's part of the issue of people expecting, oh, every Mac app should run on it. Yeah, I do think one day we'll have big Thunderbolt displays you can hook up to it and it'll be a better multi-display setup. But I think it'll be just a slow evolution of iPad apps being more and more powerful with better and better APIs. And it'll be a gradual improvement versus a big leap in running Mac apps, which aren't optimized for touch at all on the iPad. That's kind of the impression that I took away also from the developer conference this past spring. And yeah, that that it's it's going to be a long road, but it is going to be a slowly iterative one. Not like tomorrow, a touchscreen Mac or like an iPad that runs Mac OS is going to drop all of a sudden. Yeah. And iPad OS 15 lays a really great groundwork of making uh, the iPad even more an iPad with multitasking being all touch enabled and friendly. And then maybe we can now that we have this good foundation, start to add external monitor support and make it more, more of the things power users hopefully want as well. So <laughs> let's uh, now dive into music notation and this is a scene i've been following since the ipad first came out i had the people that created notion one of the earliest and best music notation apps for ipad and still is a really great app on the show and i've been blown away what they did back in the day and their app continues to get better and better and music notation is something that i've used since probably 2006 in high school when i first got in the writing music no before that 2002 I'd say. That was probably when I first got into it, kind of freshman year of high school. I haven't used Musictation software day and day as I had back uh, up until 2010, but I did use it pretty much daily uh, with Finale being the tool of choice. And this is a industry and a scene I really care about because it's something that brought me so much joy and is now again bringing me so much joy. So um, I'm very excited about these apps coming to the iPad. And let's just lay the groundwork here of what does it look like today on the Mac? Because when I left college, Dorco wasn't even a twinkle in anyone's eye quite yet so what's what's happened here <laughs> right so finale definitely is the the one that's been around the longest and uh I, you know i think in the kinds of circles of people who use this kind of software and and for me it's i'm surrounded by music teachers and we're we are a little bit of a different we have different needs and expectations and interests than maybe like a someone who's doing professional composing or engraving. So this this software definitely serves me a little bit differently. And so some of my answers might be a little bit colored by that perspective. But yeah, Finale definitely is the one that's been around the longest. And I know that- Yeah, I looked up here. Finale's 32 years old. Sibelius is 28 years old. So that's kind of the-, the Yeah, Finale is- I'm barely older than Finale. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and I definitely did not grow up using Finale. By the time that I started to get into this was late high school, early college, and Sibelius was a pretty established competitor by that time. And, you know, the way that it does work in these professional composing and teaching communities is a lot of times you either because you're a professional and you depend on very deep feature sets, it's really hard to kind of pull you from what you're comfortable workflows are once something new and hot comes along so uh in, in education it's the same but a little different i mean it's not the same it's not a different idea it's just that i think that teachers are already a little bit reluctant to learn technology so it's like if you know finale and then like something like sibelius comes along like why would you even have a spare second in your day you know of grading and answering particularly <laughs> parent conferences like to learn some new thing um so yeah so i mean it's this people Apps like Finale tend to have this staying power because, you know, it's just this such, such a long-lasting industry standard. I still have lots of colleagues who use it. Sibelius was was very comparable by the time I started using this software, which was in there also in the early 2000s. Uh, Sibelius was just sort of like what 
the talk of the university was, and it was recommended by numerous professors and students. I bought it with the educator discount. I don't remember how I afforded it. And I mean, looking at the prices of this desktop software, I don't remember how I afforded this software <laughs> back in college. But I, I remember getting Sibelius like four or five or six or one, one of those versions that was out at the time. And uh, yeah, that was kind of like my roots for composing music on a desktop computer and i you know i i got pretty good at sibelius to the point where i you know i comfortably presented at some music conferences on the subject of getting more efficient uh in sibelius and uh you know it was for a long time it was it was a really it's a really really good and useful app for me uh and then you know around the time that they were bought by avid things started to like there were certain things that they were and weren't doing with the software that in light of all the other exciting things that were happening in technology it just it just seemed like it was getting a little bit stagnant in terms of like the design of the program and the and the features were not getting huge updates and you know avid introduced some complexities into the licensing process you had to like run this avid installer constantly on your computer and and then i know th- that for me being a design minded person like, a little bit snobby about that a lot, of, a lot of my colleagues of course are not so they're just like fine and happy using sibelius and then then the subscription pricing model kicks in and that is something that a lot of people aren't crazy about so i think that you know between these movements and then now like a bunch of other options that have entered the scene since then you know i think there's uh not necessarily like one standard way people make music i mean it used to be for a while sibelius and finale but then of course uh when avid bought sibelius they uh let go part of that team and that team became the team that for years and years and years developed dorico and that is my primary mac notation editor uh ever since it released which is about four or five years ago and uh, they have been really, really transparent about the update process. They're very, very generous uh, with their time and with their wisdom on their uh, user forums. And um, they, they've just done a lot to really quickly iterate on the first version of the app. And they've rethought a lot of things that, uh, you know, I mean, like Finale being an example of something that has like largely stayed the same mm-hmm. uh, and maybe has could be could be, you know, critiqued for not innovating enough dorico is sort of like they they came to it with like okay what are all the things we've learned about making sibelius and how do we like if we if we had to start fresh which we have this opportunity to do what are the things we would just totally get rid of and how would we like rethink this kind of this kind of software so that's kind of where dorico enters the scene uh and it's been my primary desktop editor since but there's lots of other interesting things going on in this space like muse score is an open source and free program which uh if i were a student when that you know, like if I were a student today, I mean, free is, is a good price. So right. <laughs> I would probably yeah. be using it. Uh, and, you know, they just got, they, you know, they were purchased by Ultimate Guitar, who does like has a guitar tab website. But then that, that whole company recently rebranded as the Muse Group. And now they and then they bought uh, Audacity, a very, very popular open source oh, yeah. top audio editor. And then they bought StaffPad which I know you've addressed that app yeah. on this very show. And, you know, they um, definitely seem to be... Oh, and they launched um, an education platform. So they're, like, wow. really doing some interesting things in this space. But but MuseScore being, like, their desktop app, which is, you know, totally free and I would say by most accounts pretty pretty intuitive to use. Uh, and then there's things like NoteFlight and Flat.io, which are entirely web-based, maybe more analogous to google docs yeah uh, and in my in my field i see lots of educators saying that these web apps are just you know our muse score are just good enough they don't need the professional engraving or the powerful playback or for every note to be perfectly spaced these web apps you can't 
input with MIDI keyboard, right? Uh, no, you can't. Um, I'm, I'm more familiar with NoteFlight than I am. Okay, Flat. that's amazing that MIDI works with web browsers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it's very cool. We so another good one in this space is actually a, a web-based digital audio workstation called Soundtrap, and I know that their uh, one of their competitors is called BandLab, and uh, Soundtrap it was like pretty much the language of all my general music classes music making this past school year during covid it's like we were because soundtrap is a is really a google doc but it's a it's a daw in the same you know in the breath in the same breath so you're you're in a daw but you can have like five or six or seven or more kids in the same project at the same time editing their own tracks and you know recording their own audio tracks with a microphone maybe on one computer another kid can have a midi keyboard plugged into their chromebook and it can be like you know recording a software instrument and this can all be happening more or less in real time gotcha yeah and where's notion fallen they have a desktop app what are they kind of a smaller player i i learned about notion through their ipad app so i actually don't i'm not prepared to say what came first but i know that you know personas owns them and and you know notion when at the time when i was really getting into creating and making stuff on my ipad that was really one of the only options if you wanted a lot of features and yeah a decent experience so notion my gateway was their ipad app i know symphony pro has been uh, a competitor to them on the ipad and, and i'd yep. say that they're they have you know a lot of similar features they definitely um appeal to a similar kind of user and uh both use i think they both use the same uh handwriting engine for like you know converting apple pencil handwriting into notation so um you know i'd say like notion is a great it's a great option i would put it up there with like MuseScore score and note flight as mm-hmm. like things that are for at least for people in music teaching things that are good enough that they don't necessarily even look at these what, what we would call like maybe like major pro desktop applications gotcha yeah and uh, dorico came out october 2016 so it's so young. It's like under five years old, which is just baffling how good this is. And that also, as we'll talk about once we get to Dorica, we're going to start with Sibelius, but just they have a fresher code base. So they're able to do things that perhaps Finale couldn't do because of how young they are and youthful their code base is. Yeah, I, I got to interview Daniel Spreadbury, who's the product marketing manager of Dorico on my own show. And his he, you know, he he says that when they really first started sitting down to plan this app, they knew that they wanted it to run on the iPad pretty much from the very start. Um, so while they had a lot of other priorities, you know, didn't like paint themselves into a corner when they were writing the desktop version. You know, the one that runs on macOS and Windows. They they really left room, and you know, they now are now using a very similar code base uh, and development framework to write the same app for both the iPad and Windows and the Mac. Yeah, and I was listening to. Uh, an interview with the Sibelius folks as well. And they were mentioning they also use the QTE framework as Dorico does. Is that not a, f- what kind of framework is that, that these apps are sharing? Do you know? I would need to like look up. So if you, it might be worth linking to, if people want to follow up on this, there's a, I believe there's a Wikipedia page of like a, a whole bunch of apps that use QT. Okay. And I think it's pronounced, um, cute is how yeah. i think and yeah i mean it is uh here we go i'm just i'm just hopping on there right now so it's a really really flexible development platform i understand it to the extent that i understand that like it does empower developers to write one set of code and then run an app on multiple different platforms yeah because on the in the sibelius interview it was kind of interesting is like the old way of doing things they're talking about scorch is like oh, you have to write an app native for iPad, and then on the Mac, you know, 
Objective C or, you know, like, and then the Qt came along. It's like, oh, we can actually use this thing that is more comfortable to write in cross platform and make stuff work now. <laughs> and that's kind of how Sibelius and Orco were able to come to iPad in as easy as a way, I should say. Probably wasn't easy, but as simple as a way that they could. Yeah, Qt, it's extremely versatile. So it's it's hard quite to <laughs> to say like what it can and can't do. Like uh, everything from Ableton Live to VLC Media Player to Dorico to, I'm reading their Wikipedia page, Google Earth is oh, wow. <laughs> apparently yeah. written in it. Like, yeah, so I mean like it's MuseScore is also written in it, OBS. So it's a really, it's a really powerful and versatile framework. Um, I'm not sure exactly when Sibelius started using it, but yeah, it, it's definitely uh, able to do to do quite a bit. So, and I mean, we'll get into it a little bit. Like, what are maybe some of like the limitations or some of the things that we wish would come in the yeah. future of these iPad versions of these apps? Right. Uh, it's interesting to see that you know the Cute framework is not necessarily. I mean, in some cases, it can be limiting, but I, what what the limiting factor really more is, I think, is just like time of the developers do you know what i mean like you have to at some point you have to ship something and what you know you you ship is a reflection of what you prioritize in terms of like what you think is best for your users and yeah it's going to also help you to thrive as a business so yeah um yeah so i i don't see you know i don't know enough about cutes to know exactly where it's limited but like we could get into like maybe later like i know dorico you know like obviously like the apple pencil there's there's a different apple pencil strategy on uh, sibelius and dorico at launch and i know that like cute definitely factors into that mm-hmm. as far as like like it does have support for an external stylus um but what you know specifically it can do it's it's not the same as like an like someone writing an app using entirely Apple's technologies where they can just borrow stuff that Apple has already written and released for the Apple Pencil and just immediately you have native Apple Pencil integration. It's it's a lot more steps than that. But the benefit is then you can release your app on Windows, Mac, iPad, whatever else. Yeah. So Sibelius and Dorco came out within 24 hours each other in the last week of July 2021. And how big of a shock was this to you as someone that follows this space pretty closely in has used Sibelius initially and now uses Dorico. Imagine the developers must also know each other pretty nicely or closely as uh, the Dorico devs came from Sibelius. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't. I, so my understanding is like to speak to like to the industry is that there was like this was this was a coincidence um, that these two programs were ready within such a close time span of one another. Uh, even down to the day that they, you know, chose to make their announcements. I was just to disclose. I was. I've had Daniel Spreadberry on my podcast, you know, years and years and years ago. He came on to my show and you know, created an iPad version was something that I had talked about with him for a long time. And he was very generous to let me test this software. So I, I was actually not like the day that Dorico was released. I was not just in total shock about it. I kind of knew that it was coming. Yeah. Uh, and then of course. Avid had been and Sibelius team had been kind of teasing for weeks in advance through some tweets that they had some sort of what appeared to be a mobile strategy. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I figured, you know, it's been long enough since I've run Scorch on my iPad. It's probably (laughs) got to be something a lot better than that or else it wouldn't have taken them this long to make. So uh, and yeah, and then it turns out that, you know, that is uh, is, you know, Sibelius, full Sibelius for iPad. And, And, you know, for me, I think what was 
just having not seen it before the day it was released. I mean, I guess we'll get into this in a little bit, like just, you know, the kind of design approach they had taken is, I guess, what's most interesting between these respective programs more so than that uh, they have one. I'm, I'm very glad that we have these two applications. I mean, they're both these huge achievements yeah. for both companies to produce. And, you know, whether or not I personally was surprised or not by them, I would say that certainly a lot of the industry, I think, is is excited that they're out there. I mean, there's a handful of people that are, you know, really glued to their desktop when they do this kind of work. And they're just like, okay, cool. Yeah, whatever. Like, wake me up when it's, you know, not a subscription model or wake me up when it's an Android or all, all sorts of snarky things I've seen right. from various various professionals. But I think the majority of people are like, yeah, okay, very, very cool that these exist. Uh, and in some cases, I mean, the Sibelius, they've been around a while. I think one reaction I've heard is like, finally, yes, thing <laughs> <laughs> I've used is now with me everywhere. Yeah. I was emailing Finale developers back in 2012. I was like, when are you guys coming to iPad? It's like, <laughs> probably still a ways off. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, the future of what the software looks like. In the Sibelius interview, they talked about, you know, the future is, you know, iPads are part of the future. And like, yeah, uh, it'll be curious to see how Finale adapts to the M1 world and as things shift around and uh, with their old code base, if they can still you know, survive, they'll survive, but you know, if they can attract new, new customers, which is important. So Sibelius, let's start there. And what is their version one kind of offer? And what is their approach to bring this app to iPad? And we should say this is version one. And in the interview, they did mention the next five updates are going to be huge and bring something substantial to each of them. So I know they're hard at work and this is just version one. Yeah. I think in, in both cases of each of these apps, there are new features and new design approaches, uh, Dorico and Sibelius respective and, uh, you know, respectively. And I, and I think that there will be like some of the features that have been added and some, maybe even some of the design. I'm just, I'm just sort of guessing here, but I, I know that, you know, with Dorico that definitely they plan on their next desktop version, including some of the new features of their iPad offering. And I can only imagine that when, the the folks that develop Sibelius say that that they probably are you know speaking similarly that maybe there are some things that uh, actually I, I assume you're you're referring to the scoring notes interview yes which yeah great which interview a, a great interview yeah worth worth uh, listening to for anyone inter- actually that podcast is super so anyone who really likes notation software I can't imagine you don't know about the scoring notes blog and podcast but um, they're they're excellent and yeah, they mentioned things is, like already on Windows. Uh, if you have a touchscreen like Surface, you can the dragging up and down type thing for node entry with the keypad that we'll talk about in a little bit here. Right. I think that's the kind of thing that you can expect when you hear them say, okay, well, we've got like an exciting roadmap down the road. I mean, you know, reintroducing for iPad, I think the Sibelius developers asked themselves like, okay, well, what is essential to our app that we fit into this both different device, but also the smaller display? And yeah. uh, I think that it's you know not out of the question that maybe some of the things that are good about it like that i mean they outright on the interview said that they already have the desktop version working with some of these new apple pencil gestures but only using a mouse and i think you know i i would personally speculate like i wonder because this ipad version of sibelius has a much more native design to the platform than i feel like sibelius on the mac does in other words like the sibelius on ipad app looks and feels more similar to like pages or keynote or numbers on ipad than yeah. say like the desktop version of sibelius feels like to those mac counterparts like the sibelius thing that i've i've knocked before is like that the, you know they have this like big like ribbon at the top of the desktop app that's got like a lot of like cluttered yeah. options in it that are sort of it's 
it's like a very Microsoft 2010 kind of, or whichever version it was that introduced that ribbon. I can't remember when, but yeah, it's this very, like it's that kind of design interface. And, you know, it's just, it's something that for the better part of the last eight years or so has been like really phased out um, as things have become a little bit more content focused, like a lot of software, even the web, even the web has become much more focused on the content. And in the interview that you're referencing, they even mentioned that, like, we want the iPad version to be just the score. Yeah. So like you just basically are interacting with your content and there are not a whole lot of tools or buttons or knobs or whistles on the screen, which I mean, I, speaking from, from my perspective, I, I do definitely appreciate that approach on the iPad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're very different approaches because Sibelius, it feels more iPad first or, you know, it's designed especially for this device. And Dorcos will talk about it's the desktop app on the iPad, which personally, I like that approach because it also means we get all the features of the desktop app and we're not rebuilding the app. So maybe Sibelius's approach after these five big updates come out will be, oh, this is the right approach because I have all the features I want and they're done in a way that's all iPad-y versus Dorco's approach, which uh, on version one is for me the right approach, but maybe, you know, down the road, Sibelius will be the superior app. Yeah, it comes back to this idea of like, what is what makes a good iPad app and what makes a good iPad experience? Like, is it this idea that it is sort of like a digital piece of paper? Or is it this idea that it can just be a, um, a really similar window into the same kinds of experiences you have on your other computing devices? And I think that these two approaches really, really highlight it. Like, and, and both of them are developed on the same code base that like they're built on the same code base as yeah. their desktop counterparts. So you're, you're getting the core Dorico and the core Sibelius experience in numerous respects, which we, we could get into in a bit if you want. But mm-hmm. I would say that like the, the code of paint that's sort of put before you in Sibelius for iPad definitely feels more native to the iPad. Like for example, when you open it, you're taken immediately to the same interface as the Apple files app. So you're, and it features, op- you know, you can open a document in place from anywhere in your filing system, edit it, and then save it back to that location without doing a whole bunch of round tripping or like exporting it from one app to the other. It just, it just kind of works in the same way that like if you're on the Mac and you, you know, com- hit command O, open, and then you get that little mini finder window. Like it's, it's that same, that same kind of idea. And, you know, when you launch the app, you've got like a really like kind of a sleek, thin toolbar with some kind of like line style graphics that depict the different few tools that are on screen. There are not a whole lot of tools on screen. Um, so, yeah, definitely a very content forward, simplified experience as far as the UI is concerned, whereas Dorico is more like they've really just taken the exact kind of user interface elements of the Mac and the Windows version and then put it on iPad. And and they're two very different approaches, and I really appreciate things about each approach. Yeah. The Dorico team, I think the way that, that, and and this is like maybe, I don't know how relevant it is to maybe say that this is, we're having this conversation the same week that 1Password has announced that they're like making some changes to their next Mac version. Yes, as an Electron app. Yes, you know, I know Electron apps amongst people who are really serious Apple users get kind of knocked a lot you know for not looking and behaving like mac apps do but the the counter argument to that is that okay well if you make an app that looks and behaves the same way on every platform then is it best is it in your user's best interest to give them the most native experience to each device they have or to give them the experience that's native to your software in which case i think dorico is saying okay well if we give everyone the same dorico everywhere they're going to be more at home and more familiar, at least once they launch our app. Yeah, you don't have to relearn anything. Right. Yeah. And as far as version one, there's no MIDI keyboard support. 
in uh, Sibelius, which uh, which uh, I'm sure they'll add one day. But so when I write music, what I want to do, and this is why Notion never really clicked for me, is when I went to college, this is what I I would go in the, like the lobby of the music buildings, park myself down in there, and I'd have a big table out front, and <laughs> I'd have my uh, laptop in the middle, and I have a MIDI keyboard to one side of me and a external keyboard. Uh, QWERTY keyboard to the other side with a number pad, and I'd be improvising on the MIDI, and then when I find a note I like, I'd, you know, hit a number on the number pad, and then I'd enter that note, and I'd continue that process on of just improvising and hitting a number and continuing on, and that's kind of how I like to write music, and it's a lot of external hardware and a screen that I'm not touching or interacting with uh, that much, and uh, right now, Sibelius really wants you to be touching the screen and using the screen as your input kind of way to do it, which is great, uh, I think, for... Probably a lot of people. Yeah. What are your thoughts on kind of their approach so far? Yeah, it's interesting you say this. So, like, again, I, I have to say that my opinions are colored by the the needs of, like, and the experiences of being a music teacher. So I am not actually, like, I think that these these professional offerings are awesome. Like, I'm always going to try to find the thing that makes me the best at doing the job. And so, like, using a professional tier of software is always going to be something that I'm thinking about. But that doesn't mean that my actual needs are always the most advanced. So I'm I'm not like particularly someone who is like power using every single feature of the software. Sometimes I really what's most powerful to me is if it just lets me get in and out of it quickly. It's for for that reason that I feel like some of these iPad first experiences. I mean, like we're not going to talk too much. I don't think today about StaffPad, but StaffPad is like all the way on this extreme of like it's not only it's not only an iPad first experience. It's an iPad only experience or, or Windows tablet if you're using yeah, one. Yeah, you need an Apple Pencil and it's all about writing and it recognizes your handwriting, which I'm sad that that approach didn't work for me because I, I do like handwriting, you know, music at times as a like break from the normal way of doing things. So, so while I am a really committed Dorico user, I think where Sibelius does really get something right here is that their app, even though it is, it's got a lot of the power of Sibelius under the hood, and a lot of the features, I think that the, like the on, oh, I don't want to call it onboarding, but just the experience of like working with the app feels a little bit lighter because of some of these iOS specific design conventions. So like the fact that I open it and I don't have to think about importing something from my file system into it before I can work with it, the fact that it just shows me my file system, that's just one little tiny paper cut less <laughs> of using the app. Yeah, in um, Dorco, I have a shortcut automated setup so when every time i close the dorico app it backs up the dorico uh, local folder because it saves everything locally on your ipad it saves that uh from dorico local folder to an icloud folder of dorico so it's backed up there and if i did use a mac i could then access my ipad files uh i guess if i was using a mac i would have also have an automation when i open the app to like import you know move over the iCloud stuff back into dorico so yeah with spellies it's all just i'm using iCloud. right yeah it, it really it's, it, it makes it feel nice. And the fact that it is very content forward and that you are able to interact more directly uh, with the Apple Pencil, it certainly makes it feel like something that you could kind of get in and out of and, and use, you know, uh, to, to make some, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like if you just need to make a quick worksheet or like write out a quick melody, like I, I feel like it's, you know, it really works for me in that way. And I really do like their keypad. Like I did try it out and like... If I was just without any external hardware, their approach, I think, really works well. You're not touching the staff of the screen. You are you have your finger on this keypad, and you're dragging it up or down to change the note. And then 
you know, you can even use a number pad to get around that keypad as well. Yeah, so I think their approach is actually really good. It, it makes use of the finger in a way that makes sense because a finger is a big thing that would cover elements of the screen. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was why I brought up StaffPad was because like while StaffPad is this iPad-only experience with the pencil, I think that Sibelius kind of finds this balance where you are feeling uh, like you're taking advantage of it uh, and you can get in and out of it quickly and you don't have to think too hard about learning anything. Um, even though, I, you know, touching touching the, the different rhythms with the pencil and then sliding up and down is not the most discoverable thing. Once you learn it, it's pretty easy and intuitive to do. I think it's a pretty nice implementation of apple pencil are there things i can imagine that are better maybe but it's definitely has the precision of the pencil without um sacrificing the kind of control you need as a user because like with staff pad you don't always know what it's going to do with the notation you've scribbled on the screen like you have to wait until it interprets it right and you're you, there's even when it doesn't interpret you correctly there's really no recourse you have but like you can just like try a million times to draw it neater or more the way that it wants to interpret whatever rhythm or note value you've written down. But uh, with Sibelius, you know, there's, you're always kind of seeing directly on the screen what the output is as you're dragging the pencil. So Yeah, and something they uh, kind of talked about with the Apple Pencil is you can use the keypad to change the duration. And one setup they showcase is have one hand with the Apple Pencil in your hand, the other hand have the keypad handy to change duration. And they even told uh, showed that you can move the keypad to the left side of the screen if you want to. Um, what I really wish is if they would let me move it to the top left, because that's kind of the natural point of rest for me for that hand uh, on the iPad, uh, just balance-wise and everything. So I hope they make that uh, tweak in the future. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. So I think I think what makes me, what maybe, just to come back to your original question that got us down this path, yeah. is like just sort of looking at a top level as like, Sibelius as a little bit more adaptive to iPad conventions and Dorico as more just bringing the Dorico desktop experience over. I think that like if, if you try to imagine where each of these iPad apps might be in a couple of years, it's like if I were to imagine like Dorico adding just a couple of this, those iPad isms, like being able to work in split view, um, like some sort of Apple pencil story, um, the file one, the file one is the one that's most in my way right now with how I work. Um, yeah. Like adding some of those things, but then retaining the foundation of what they built seems more like the app that I want to be using every day than what Sibelius is today, but like with maybe a little bit more power under the hood. And that could just be because Dorico is what I've been using, what I've been using lately, but it is a very, very powerful app. Sibelius is powerful too, but they have taken a lot of those things that are in the ribbon on the Mac version and they've condensed them into what they call the command search, which is basically like a little magnifying glass icon that contains like, I, I think almost like to say this almost literally, it contains everything that the app can do that isn't basic yeah. note input, like rhythm and pitch. And something that I heard is that search, uh, it's great if you know what you're searching for, but it's not the most great if it doesn't have like synonyms of the thing you're searching for. So if, it's, if you're not uh, knowing what Sibelius calls it, good luck finding it. Yeah, that is definitely like the, the, the right critique, I think. Like it, the benefit is that everything is in the same place. And I do, and I do get that. Like I, I think about certain like um kind of like power user note and task apps that i've tried and used where like you have sort of like a uh almost like a command open option where you basically a keyboard shortcut that when you start typing text it's looking at every project name every folder every task name every note associated with every task it's basically just like gonna show you the thing you want as in as few keystrokes as possible and i think that that's the 
you know, that's kind of like the ideal situation. And I, and I do appreciate that Sibelius has said, hey, guess what? We've made the user interfaces super clean and super content forward. And then you can actually, through uh, powerful commands, get to literally anything you need in the quickest way. The problem is, yes, what you've just said. Like, you need to know exactly the phrasing, the name of the feature. You need to even know to the like how it's spelled. For example, I, I wanted to take a melody I had written and have a third higher added to every note. So I dragged with my finger, selected the section, and then, uh, you know, on the on a computer keyboard, you can do on Sibelius Shift 3, we'll just add a third higher to whatever note is selected. Uh, I wanted to try the command search because I thought this would be, you know, there's no button on screen to do it. I was holding it uh, without the keyboard attached. So uh, I went there and I type, went to the search and I typed in the word third spelled out T-H-I-R-D, and nothing came up. And I thought, hmm. So I deleted, you know, my search entry, and then I typed in the number three, R-D, third. And it came up. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking to myself, like, hmm. Even knowing what which one they want, I can see myself, like, that being a little bit of cognitive overhead. Like, if I'm in the middle of a busy project, I just sometimes am going to type out yeah. the word instead of the number three, R-D. And so that, yeah, that definitely it's a, a really, really good idea. I think that it could stand to be um, easier to find stuff in that menu. Right. And their approach is kind of like the create menu. I think that's pretty nice. Like there's there's elements of Sibelius that they the UI is kind of nice. I, I hated the ribbon in college. That was one of the most confusing things. And I also, the note entry itself didn't jive with me. Like the finale way is kind of what, the Dorica way is it feels like of the improvising and hitting the numbers and stuff. And I will say, uh, keyboard commands. Uh, if you have a QWERTY keyboard, uh, those are all pretty much there. Uh, both Sibelius and Dorico. And Dorico even lets you customize them in a special uh, preference pane. Sibelius and Dorico also don't use the command hold command key to show you all the keyboard shortcuts. Uh, even though Sibelius is kind of iPad first, that part of it didn't translate over probably because there's so many keyboard shortcuts. Uh, maybe they were worried it'd be like a thousand pages and it might be get confusing. Yeah, it could also be that they wrote the apps in Qt, but, it, but I'm wondering though, I mean, that seems like something that you could... Because you do not have to develop an app in one framework. I mean, you can add Apple. I mean, in in the same way that Sibelius is also a cute app, but that they have like the file, you know, the open in place file thing. Like that, you can combine with other Apple features. I have don't know enough about development to know what it takes to add that little cheat sheet yeah. to the bottom of the screen. I mean, certainly the Dorico key commands. I mean, any anything that Dorico can do. That's the thing that someone who's unfamiliar with these apps needs to know is like the kinds of things that you can do. Like there are hundreds, <laughs> if not thousands of actions that you can take in an app. It's not like where you are in pages and you go to the, you know, up to the menu bar and you like every single thing the app can do can be like nested within like six or seven different submenus like these things do so much and with you know with dorico you can actually go in i mean i kind of freaked out it was the reason i knew that this was going to be a great release was when i saw that the same custom keyboard shortcut manager from the mac version was in the ipad version you know it's the same thing you would expect like if you're running pro tools or logic or any one of these programs that has such an advanced feature set that they allow you to take any small little task you know, that you might do and then add a key command to it. So uh, I don't think that they would fit if they tried to shove that into that little cheat sheet interface that Apple does. But I very, very, very much appreciate, uh, you know, how, how much you can do to customize it. Yeah. And the company that makes uh, those um, special keyboards has a Dorico keyboard. I'm kind of tempted to get a external Dorico keyboard with all the keyboard uh, shortcuts etched right in there. I'd love if they'd made like a magic keyboard 
uh, case with the, the uh, like for iPad, like if they bought up some magic keyboards for iPad and uh, sold custom keyboards in that way, that'd be kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's makes me wonder, like, I, I, there's there's a lot i mean i i don't you don't need to i guess this is rhetorical because it's like I, it's i'm fully aware why this isn't something that i can hold in my hands today but it, you know it, the idea of like having keys on a keyboard like that are just have fixed letters on them in the first place seems yeah i don't know and it, with the advent of ios sort of like having your whole screen just become the experience it seems interesting to me that no one has really chased this idea yet of well like Okay, but the keyboard, obviously, like, it would be super expensive and impractical, maybe, to put, like, little LCD screens underneath each key. But I mean, it seems Apple like... would love to sell you a $1,000 Magic Keyboard for <laughs> iPad that is just custom LEDs on every key. I'm sure. I'm sure they would. Um, so for whatever of the many reasons I can imagine that that does not exist, it would be super cool. Because the reason I never buy one of those those little sticky keypad keypad yeah. things is because you know it's like okay well now i just have dorico stickers on like what if i'm running pro tools i would love right. to have a set of pro tools yeah. stickers to remind me where you need the, 10 you know. keyboards to get through your day exactly right yeah. <laughs> so yeah and with dorico you know the thing that's that's cool about that i would most that i'm always trying to keep in the back of my mind and what i think makes it such a great piece of software one of the things that makes me most efficient anyway is this feature called the the key the keyboard popovers mm-hmm. and you know they've got like 10 or more of these like letters on the keyboard where if you hold shift and press that letter, it sort of like pulls, puts up a little box where you can start typing into. And they have this whole syntax that's all typed from the computer keyboard of like things that you can insert into the music just from the keyboard. So like, for example, uh, rather than like, uh, in, like in Sibelius, for example, if I wanted to have the music go from piano to mezzo forte to piano again, and then have like it crescendo, you know, between those dynamics and then diminuendo, um, I would have to like insert expression markings for the piano. I'm sorry, text markings for the piano, for the you know mezzo, for the mezzo forte, and for the piano. And then actually, hairpins are l- from a different part of Sibelius. They're treated as lines because they're technically technically they're like graphics um, that appear in the screen. And so, like, Dorico is sort of more looping all of these together. Like, it understands that all of those commands, even though they look different they all relate to the dynamics what you can do is you can hold shift d for dynamics and then a little pop-up will appear and then there's like a number of things you can type straight from the keyboard that are i don't want to call them natural english because like some of them are abbreviations and there's like symbols and letters and numbers you need to use but if you type p for piano uh, less than sign for the crescendo marking mf uh you know less uh, greater than sign and then P, it'll actually like notate that as a piano with a hairpin to a mezzo forte with a hairpin to a piano, all underneath of whatever the selected passage was. And when I first saw that happen, I was like, this is nuts. Like, this is so crazy that you can have this keyboard first kind of system for entering almost any kind of notation you would want. And on the iPad, they've created a really uh, clever button on the screen that brings one of those up if the keyboard is not attached. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, you t- and then you choose the type of popover you want to initiate, and then the on-screen keyboard flips up from the bottom and allows you to type in whatever you want. So pretty clever. Yeah, and I've been finding that super handy. Add you know more bars to your score in that way. Yeah, so like Shift-M, and then uh, a little pop-up appears. Let's just say you want to add five measures to the end of your score or from wherever you have selected. Shift-M does the pop-up, and then you hit the plus. Uh, you type plus, and then the number of measures you want, and enter, and then it just adds them. Yeah, and yeah, the whole system of using a keyboard to get around is super handy and i also you told me this about dorco is you don't input rests you um instead you tell the system what kind of rhythmic grid you want to 
be using. So I have it set to eighth notes. So every time I cursor to like arrow through, it's an eighth note. So if I just want to enter an eighth note or a quarter note rest, I can just use the grid to fast forward through that measure. And then uh, that's when I start to input my next note and it'll just magically put in the rest. And that seems to work really, really well. And I was kind of surprised how much I liked it. Because in the old way of doing it, I remember, oh, if I want to enter a rest, I just don't play anything on the MIDI keyboard. And then I hit uh, a number key and that will, but this method seems to work pretty nice. Yeah. Dorico is really intuitive for people who are coming from the experience of producing music in a digital audio workstation. Like the idea of music, you know, there being no sound as sort of just being like empty space and time versus an actual like rest symbol that needs to be inserted with the same intention as a note head is like the DAW method would be like, okay, we'll just pencil in where you want the sounds to happen on this piano roll using the, the keyboard and mouse. Uh, whereas something like Sibelius is you're like actively entering the rest. You're saying like, okay, I know there's going to be a rest here. What kind of duration is that rest? Okay. Uh, enter the rest. And now the note, whereas Dorico is really just saying, what's the duration of the note? And then where do you want it to start? And we'll figure out, all of the notation that needs to happen in between the last thing you typed and the thing you're typing now. And it's really, it's an intuitive approach that I think is in part, uh, you know, they're leveraging, I think one of their strengths is that, you know, they're leveraging some of the technologies of Cubase, which is, you know, Steinberg, who makes Cubase is also, you know, who who uh, the Dorico team works for. So Steinberg is sort of like, I think uh, they're taking some, insp- in some cases, some of the actual technologies from Cubase, and in some cases, just the inspiration from Cubase to determine how they approach the entry of notation. And this comes down also to their playback engine, which is one of the things that is like definitely a strength of Dorico on iPad. Is if you hit Command Four and you go into play mode, you have the same play mode on the iPad that you have on the Mac, and it's very, very customizable. I mean, you can look at a histogram of like note velocity on a per track basis. Uh, you can like change the you know uh, the audio output like you can choose the software instrument for each voice using audio units on iOS. Uh, you can like there's this great on-screen mixer that allows you to actually actually some of the great things about the iPad app are that you can now see some of this stuff even when you're like in the mode that's designed for writing. Yeah. So like you can be writing your score and then some of these features that used to be in play mode actually now you can see at the same time. So you can now see like um, a mixer at the bottom of the screen while you're actually inputting your notes. Uh, one cool thing they added to the iPad version, which is coming to the next desktop version, is uh, it's it's they call it the key editor, but it's actually it's more or less a piano roll that actually shows you the notes of whatever instrument is selected in you know like with a piano going uh, vertically on the left and then sort of like in the same way that you can like in a digital audio workstation just click and drag any note as depicted by a little colorful rectangle and drag the right end of it to make it last longer or shorter or you can drag it up and down to change pitch or left and right to change rhythm and there's times where this is actually for at least for my brain a pretty intuitive way to work with notation yeah and there's a mode where it changes the actual notation and then there's also a mode where it just changes the performance because sometimes you just want it to sound different exactly right and that's the thing with play mode is i think dorico's philosophy just just to speak more to what they're doing across all platforms not just on ipad but they're very very focused on engraving and making sure that the music looks as beautiful and legible as possible whether by it be their excellent defaults like it by default gets the best looking score of any program i've used and i'm talking about the spacing between the notes like the font you know how it handles like the different kinds of like musical fonts like it, it gets the most legible and beautiful score without tweaking anything but even if it doesn't then it has 
all these crazy tweaks you can do. It has a whole mode called engrave mode that is just designed to make the score and the notation look a certain way without actually altering the notation that you've input into the system. And play mode is the same way. It's only you're now editing the sound, the playback that you hear without actually changing any of the notation that you've entered versus something like Sibelius, where it's like it's all in the same interface, which mm-hmm. for better or worse, I mean, that means that you are not entering into different, using different tools or different modes to determine note input versus layout. But uh, but then there can be quirks, like you can accidentally drag a symbol off, you know, <laughs> the side margin of yeah. the screen and not be able to find it. Whereas Dorico sort of says, okay, like if this note is a mezzo forte. Well, when you're writing the score, you tell us that that note is a mezzo forte note. You put the symbol underneath it. Great. And then in engrave mode, you can do any wacky, crazy thing with that mezzo forte that you want. You can move it like six pages to the right, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's still going to know that that note is the one that's the mezzo forte note. Um, You can make the stems of the notes be like little stubs. You can like even bring in your own uh, image files to, you know, and then define different kinds of notation by these image files. I think actually it was on that same interview or, or a recent one on that Scoring Notes podcast they were talking about. You know, you could do, uh, I think David McDonald said, as you could literally like bring in a Mickey Mouse head as your note head style. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, great. Yeah, so I mean, you, there's just uh, a, a ton that, that you can do. Something I hope the mixer one day adds is the ability to, as it's performing, I haven't input any dynamics at all. I want to just mix and have the dynamics kind of be inputted and written for me as i mix do you see that as a thing that they'll ever consider doing i really like the way you're thinking about that because that's like a very digital audio workstation kind of approach to things it's the it's the idea of automating the you know some sort of feature of the audio playback only by um you know say taking that parameter and then mapping it to some sort of like actual physical input that you're going to do in real time and then having yeah. it. So like, for example, if I were using a synthesizer in a digital audio workstation, I could map the, like some sort of like EQ or some sort of filter to a knob on my keyboard and then, you know, hit the record button. And as I turn that knob, you know, I have the, the benefit of this like very, very um, tactile physical control that I'm moving with my hand on the keyboard. But then the software is like, you know, mapping the the amount of filter or you know volume or panning or whatever to that in real time and yeah i think that would they add it i don't know how high on dorico's priority list it is but given that they're taking so many cues from cubase i have to wonder if it would be maybe like an, i don't know i i i'm gonna actually re put in a request to the forum and see if i get any any response to that because i don't think that that would be a a very hard thing for them to implement based on the foundation they have i mean there there are not there are not as many parameters that i can think of that she would automate i mean and and i'm just to say this again i'm not someone who does a ton with playback just because usually i'm making um pretty simple resources yeah the software but but back when i was doing the mixer today is only used for playback right it's only used to optimize how it sounds uh for the final output right yeah so it's not you're not going to be able to hit record and then like take the master volume and like slowly drag it down to get it to imitate a decrescendo right yeah are you suggesting that the actual like that doing that would have would change the playback permanently or that it would actually like write the notation of a diminuendo in the right is yeah and then I, i could tweak it after it interprets what it has written in the score uh, for me. That seems a little bit more... Because you have a track-by-track mixer. So like a clarinet, you have a mixer just for that instrument. And you could even do multiple passes where 
on this playback, I'm going to do the clarinet and mix that and have it write out what it interprets for that, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's an interesting way to think about inputting notation through a MIDI controller. I, I really like that. I've never actually considered like the idea of you know, it writing the notation based on really, I mean, really I'm used to MIDI controllers just doing um, rhythm and pitch. So yeah. Writing dynamics with in, yeah, currently it's just an on-screen mixer, but if you are able to program a knob on a MIDI keyboard to do that, that would be even more tactile and useful, I think. Right. Yeah. I wonder if it'd almost be the inverse problem that you get by, you know, because these scores never really sound exactly like they're going to sound when you have them played by real musicians and i wonder if it would be almost like the reverse problem like would it ever be able to really properly i mean you know determine the dynamic that you had intended based on right it would have to be in context of here's your entire piece of music and let's and yeah and i think it'd just be a good starting point to work from as in like when you hit record i never do this you can have it do a click track and have it interpret your performance and then notes and rhythms and stuff. I never find that accurate enough because I'm too sloppy of a player to make that accurate enough for me. I know some people have success with it, but it's almost like that where it gives you the rough interpretation. Then from there, you can change the dynamics appropriately. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, one of the reasons I don't do a lot of MIDI input isn't because I don't like to. It's just because so much of the time I'm on a laptop or an iPad. And you're not like pulling out the whole set of, let me get my external keyboard plugged in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I almost like, you know, and I, and I, I love the idea of having different kinds of like workstations that I dock my device into, but the iPad specifically is never something that I've thought of. Well, I guess not the Mac either. I've never really think of them as these kinds of things where it's like, I want to have extra peripherals in my bag when I'm on the go. Like the fun of having them be so portable is that I don't have extra stuff in my bag. Yeah. The keyboard you recommend to me, it's great. It's um, the K-Key 25, I believe it's called. It's a USB keyboard, a MIDI keyboard. Uh, It's micro USB, but they have these wonderful cables that are micro USB to USB-C. So... I can plug directly into it with a single cable to, into my iPad Pro and have a MIDI keyboard with me and be off to the to races doing really awesome input on the go with this thing. And I love the little... I got a little bundle that came with a keyboard sleeve for that uh, MIDI keyboard. And it also fits in that sleeve. I can throw in an external Magic Keyboard, a Magic Trackpad in that thing. I've got an external number pad I can throw in that little sleeve. So I've got like all these input devices in this little uh, keyboard sleeve now that I'm just finding a, a lot of joy with. Is it that like same black and orange one? Yep. That- yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I never even thought about trying to put more stuff in it. That's good to know it'll fit so much. <laughs> yeah, it totally fits. Yeah, it fits like, yeah, because the external Magic Keyboard, I've got one of those. Uh, it's just super thin, so you can fit that in. I've got this external uh, Bluetooth number pad as well, which I find really useful with Dorico. And then, uh, yeah, I've got the little USB-C to micro USB cable in there as well. So, yeah, pretty handy. Yeah, that C key, it's like, um, it, it, I like that that team just kind of thought to themselves okay like how do we take a make a little midi keyboard that really just spiritually looks and feels like the apple magic keyboard and they they you know but we but we don't try to you know over engineer it to the point where it's like this expensive premium product we just make it you know somewhat affordable and accessible and i and i really like that they've sort of nailed that i mean it's got that same sort of aluminum look to like the base of it with like the white keys just sort of like ever so slightly you know, sticking out of the top of it was just enough, 
you know, it's it's just they have just the amount of um, give to them that I would expect something so skinny to have. Um, but while sort of, you know, still, I feel like I am in control over tapping with some amount of rhythm and precision when yeah. recording in real time. And it's got the octave keys nice and handy. So you're going to be jumping up and down really easily for that, um, which is which is great. I played around a bit with like it's got like bending of pitches and I don't use that as much. But yeah, it's got all the basics you'd you'd want from a keyboard. Yeah, I like it. I have one on my desk at work because I don't keep a full size, you know, piano keyboard like I do in my home studio at work. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's like a hundred bucks. Yeah, really good option there. Uh, so Sibelius, I want to touch a couple more things in Sibelius. They mentioned on their blog post, which is really in depth. If you're gonna get into Sibelius, I'd recommend reading their blog post because they do point out a lot of cool things about the app. Uh, you can use the trackpad to input notes, which it's kind of interesting, but. I found it a bit frustrating that I didn't preview kind of what note I'm actually inputting. Uh, I wonder if they'll ever do that because I, I know on iPad you can like have magnetized pointers and kind of like shape the note head to be different things. And I wonder if they'll end up getting into like making that a really cool experience because you could do interesting things with that because the pointer on iPad is so customizable these days. That's another one of those things where I don't know what the limitations of Qt are or like to what extent you can customize it with like using a little bit of apple's apis in combination with other frameworks because i know you know very much so like the cursor sort of morphing and changing into whatever it's hovering over is very much uh, a technology that apple provides some tools to integrate into your software um obviously dorico and sibelius uh neither of them have you know that amount of uh flexibility with the cursor in fact i would even say like the trackpad the magic trackpad in particular is something that does not feel really native um and in me as a a dorico and a sibelius keyboard user you know i i really like to input notes from the computer keys themselves so the fact that like the most you know the thing that's like right under my finger is the trackpad not the screen in that case uh and the fact that like i know in dorico um you can you can't two finger scroll through your score like you can nope (laughs) on the desktop version uh sibelius is the same in fact, Sibelius, yeah, so I'm, I, you can click and drag because, of course, uh, you know, the when the trackpad is not employed natively, it behaves just like a finger. So, uh, you know, obviously because a finger can touch and drag the score yeah. one direction or the other, you can click somewhere that where there aren't notes in a Sibelius or a Dorico score and move it. But, yeah, uh, and then even, I mean, even Sibelius on you know, when you're interacting directly with touch, it doesn't have like, um, like the more inertia kind of based model. So like the second that your finger leaves the screen, it doesn't keep moving. Mm-hmm. It just sort of stops cold, which is makes it, you know, if you're doing a multi-page score, that means you're just, you know, lifting your finger off, you're, you're doing a workout, um, to move the screen. So, so I don't know. I, I think like the, those would be things that I would want to see before anything adaptive, to the screen but i mean looking here at the top of sibelius for example the toolbar does not look unlike other toolbars that i've seen in apple's own apps so i don't know how much custom code they have here but from the look of it at least it seems like it wouldn't be out of the question that maybe some of these buttons when you hover over them would kind of like be a little stickier um, yeah and even like when you're doing like note input with a trackpad i'd love like showing me what ledger line i'm about to input when i click yeah i'm I'm actually so and that was the first part of your question so i'm just like in a score right now sorry i moved away from my microphone to say that um i'm just like yeah so i've got a note selected and yeah unlike the desktop version where you sort of see a preview of which liner space the note is on you're sort of 
blind. But if you use the Apple Pencil, you can you get the preview that you would with a mouse. So that yeah. again, that seems like um, something that is like a native track magic keyboard trackpad feature that i could totally see both of these developers doing more with down the right. road yeah and the, the apple pencil and spill is it's a really interesting approach i think you need to spend some time to really learn and master it because i did just play around with it and the tilting and pressure stuff i i found it just a bit tricky to from the get-go but i think if you spend some time with it you can really master it as you kind of need to master the software for learning uh some of it, at least. Right. Yeah. I, the whole like taking your pencil and like, okay, because like on, on one level, if you touch the Apple Pencil to the type of rhythm or like note value or symbol that you want, and then you drag up and down, you'll, you know, you're choosing which pitch you enter. And if you drag it left and right, you're choosing like, is there a sharp or a flat before it? Um, that works really well for me. But then there's like this other kind of pencil mode you can go into, which is what you're talking about, which is the one where like you can like directly touch the apple pencil to where on the staff you want the note to appear but then if you like tilt it to the left it'll like change whether or not it's got a sharp or a flat or the duration of the note like based on how high like how up or down left and right the pencil is tilted but like (laughs) like Mm -hmm. i don't know who i mean i don't know if you tried to do this but if you try to get certain duration like let's just say you try to get like a 30 second note with a flat symbol in front of it like the way you have to contort your hand with the pencil is already uncomfortable enough then try actually lifting it off the screen to input the note you see there without making some sort of change when you yeah. lift your hand off the screen yeah it's tricky um i don't know i don't see i'm curious if they can have the way a way to collect data on who uses which input methods inside of the application and i would be really curious to know if anyone really gets into that sort of part of the pencil input i don't think it's for me yeah and it's also they do use dark mode which is kind of cool um so they are like trying to integrate as much of the system-wide stuff as they're able to which is really nice yeah dorico has this like um kind of like pro app like we're always in dark uh, we're always in dark mode kind of a thing going yeah. on you know like all, all the tools and everything are always this kind of like blue dark bluish or dark grayish. It'd be fun if Sibelius did have like a true dark mode mode where like the the notes are white and like it's like very dark and like it's not like white staff paper behind it and stuff and so it's like white line. Yeah, I think uh, right. I think a lot of developers really want to do that right, and that's why so few of them do it. But I was just um, using uh, an app that I'm sure you're familiar with, DevonThink, uh, mm-hmm. to look at a textbook. That had some musical notation in it. Yeah, it does, it, does the I, inversion thing with everything, right? Yeah, so when, you, when you're in dark mode, it just inverts the color. And, and I mean, it was a scan of a couple of pages from some text. Uh, and it was, yeah, I mean, so you could obviously, like, in places where there was a little bit of shadow from the camera having taken a picture of the page, it, that was, like, now, like, inverted. So it was, like, <laughs> yeah. white where there was, like, black from the shadow of the phone. But it was it didn't bother me at all. I thought to myself, like, I'm not really thinking about, you know, how, like, like I'm not thinking about how this isn't optimized for the app nearly as much as when I'm in light mode or rather when I'm in dark mode and then like I'm dealing with a white document and like how blinding it is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so much more noticeable to me. So I would almost rather just take the, the shortcut to like, you know, more or less just invert the colors. Of yeah. These kinds of Cause documents. the is dark mode basically frames your score in a dark interface versus something the whole, which is, yeah, that's one approach to take for now. So in Dorco's interview, uh, they mentioned, the M1 Mac really was an instigator of this whole project because they knew, oh, we're going to have to do some porting to this new chip. Let's just do it on iPad as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think this is like, again, one of the things that we keep hitting back at is like when you can find that the way that you're writing your software, you know, can be done one time and can scale all sorts of various different ways. 
Um, I think that is eventually better for everyone, you know, because I think in the in my conversation with Daniel from Dorico, and I think in the conversation we keep ref- uh, referencing with um, some of the Sibelius team, uh, you get the idea that these decisions were not made in this vacuum or like where they were like, you know, spent whatever number of months they did and said like, okay, we're making our iPad app. And what is the iPad app? And I think it's actually they're being developed more holistically. Like, okay, what is like the direction that our software is going and what does it mean to have mobile software? And what questions do we have to ask about our software because of this mobile version that might then come back and influence the desktop version or what things make sense to just go out in step across all devices? Like, do we really need to have these two separate releases? And, you know, I think what we'll see is some of the features of both programs will come back to the desktop in the next year or two. And then I think probably moving forward into the future, my hope is that, you know, because this years long foundation has been built, that it won't be like the iPad is lagging behind the Mac for so long in the future. Instead, we'll just be seeing like regular updates to these kinds of programs that have all the same features across all platforms. Yeah. I really want to see the movie scoring mode in Dorico come to iPad. I don't know if it's the multi-window thing that Dorico probably needs to have. I don't know how they do it on the Mac, but they may need to utilize multiple windows on the Mac, and maybe that's what's holding that up. You know, they and they, I think, are open to as as was uh, when I talked to to Daniel Spreadberry. You know, they're open to the idea of doing more with the app. I think you know this is definitely a new space for this kind of tier of professional scoring software. To, you know, to, to be on the iPad is is definitely like a bold and new move. I think for both companies, and I yeah. think it's there's going to be some user feedback as well. Uh, you know, how is it received? Who subscribes? Um, what kind of you know feedback do you get about which features the the people who are actually using the software really want? You know, I think that's going to in turn influence the future of the software in a virtuous kind of way. Yeah, because with the movie score, I could see you hooking up to an external monitor and have the movie displayed there while you're working on your score on your main screen, and that could a setup that's used. I don't, yeah, it's the um, do you spend the resources doing that? Will enough people use it? That I think they do have the potential and will expand their user base. You have people like me that wrote music in college and kind of moved on with their life and are getting back into it because the iPad's their main device. And hey, here's Dorico or Sibelius. Right. And I, and I, the point I was making uh, about Dorico and talking with Daniel Spreadbury a moment ago is that you know I think that through that cycle of user feedback i think that it is definitely something they've considered to have like a like a more of a a pro tier because like basically dorico for ipad is the free version is really quite similar to their desktop offering which is also free yeah Um, and we should mention both apps have free tiers totally free you can write music that's you know just a couple saves i think four for sibelius and with dorico you get two for free and then if you sign in with the stein um steinberg account yep you get four um that's free as well and then um then they have different subscription tiers from there and dorco is just one subscription it's four bucks a month or 40 a year which is dirt cheap for what you're getting i think exactly yeah has a range of different uh tiers yeah and so dorico's paid tier is brings it in line with their middle tier yep, on the, the uh, Elvins tier. And then they have one higher for desktop as well. Correct. Yeah, they have a pro version. Now, their middle tier on iPad does some of the stuff with the pro version. Um, yeah, because they unlocked unlimited staves uh, as well for that tier. So that's more than you would on the desktop, which I think maxed at, what, 16? Right. And there's um, some engraving mode features that are on the iPad version once you're a paying subscriber that are not in the middle tier of the desktop version as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a hybrid. And, and then I think some, some 
Yeah, and then Sibelius sort of has like a list of features that are in the various three tiers of their own app, which are some. There, there are obviously like asterisks uh, for, for all of the things that we're saying. But it's like this one's on um, uh, desktop, this one's not. And if you just subscribe on iPad, uh, the pricing is cheaper. So you can just sign in with your. Um, if you're a current Sibelius user, you can sign up with your current subscription just fine. But if you just want to use it on iPad, you get a. You know, I think it's three bucks off their first tier and you know right and and i think their the features are somewhat in line as well with the desktop version with with again some of those asterisks i i can't mention them all because i'm sure there's lots of little there are a lot de- details in fine print but for, for the most part the things that you expect to do with sibelius first which is their free tier you should expect to be able to do with it on your ipad if you're logged in to an account that's subscri- subscribed to sibelius first on the desktop and then the same goes with their middle tier sibelius and then their higher tier sibelius ultimate um so yeah, and that's that's an interesting approach because like Dorico is a is a one time purchase on the desktop and then a subscription on the iPad mm-hmm. and you know I, they told me uh, very clearly that they are not going to a subscription model for the desktop, but if they ever offered one alternatively that gave you a bundle of the iOS and the Mac version, I would certainly right. consider it. Yeah, I think they'd probably always offer a standalone, as Daniel said, because that's what their users expect and want, but doesn't stop them from adding a subscription and seeing how many people want that. Yep. So Dorco, uh, getting started with setting up your score, is there anything of note that you want to point out about that setup process? Flows I want to talk about as well that's part of the setup process. One thing I love about the setup tab is you can just go back to the setup tab at any point in time and you know add a new flow or uh, change it up a bit. It's not like you set it up and then you're set up and you're done. Right. So when you... So, I mean, from the moment that you open Dorico, you are taken to uh, a hub... Which is, as you know, like many apps will have kind of like a custom onboarding screen or or rather what's launch screen, I should say, which kind of, you know, like Microsoft Office is an example of this. They have their own sort of like, hey, here's some recent documents you open or like, do you want to create a new thing from a template? And uh, Dorico is the same. So rather than like in the case of Sibelius, where you just see, you know, like a giant depiction of the Apple Files app, uh, you see some of your recently opened scores. And you can open one. Um, you have the option to create new. And then there's a little learn area where you can learn some of the features of the, of the software. Um, from there, anything that is already in on your iPad can be opened and, and worked with immediately. Uh, but then there's also like an import button in the lower left corner, which can bring in Dorico projects from the file system. Uh, or it can open XML files which is um, a type of file that can sort of like be passed between these different programs. What's your success been with passing stuff around the various notation apps? Like if I wanted to do some handwriting in uh, a staff ad. Yeah, I did that the other day, actually. So I really, I, I think that, for really simple writing, StaffPad is sometimes pretty pretty fast and efficient. I actually have been doing time trials in preparation for all of my various things, I've been, like this talk and the things I've been doing on my blog and podcast. And I'm th- planning eventually to do some more comparative kind of stuff on my blog uh, about this software. But I've been doing some time trials <laughs> to see how fast I input notes in each of them. Yeah. And th- there are times where uh, for really, really simple rhythms, uh, StaffPad is actually really, really quick. So mm-hmm. um, there was a, just the other day, I was writing something in Dorico and I was, I had a melodic idea that was a little bit, 
it was simple, but it was a little bit less repetitive. I was doing lots of copying and pasting in my accompanying instruments. And I, yeah, I just bounced over to staff pad real quick, wrote out like an eight to 16 measure melody, saved it as an XML, XML file, and then went back into Dorico and then imported it. And it, you know, it looks great. Again, I'm, I'm not the kind of user who's, who's really using um, lots, like doing lots with layout um, or even like, you know, um, too much with like the different flows or any, anything like that. So I don't know. I, I might not be the best person to criticize XML. It mm-hmm. w- works pretty well for my needs. Things generally look a little funny when you're done importing. Uh, the simpler the score, the the better results you get. Yeah, if you um, don't put dynamics in quite yet, that'll behave better. Yeah, I mean, like every program, unfortunately, has different ways that it interprets XML, and some interpret all of the data that's in the XML file, some don't. The, the one thing I'll say about Dorico, which is a strength, is that what it does with what it gets is generally it looks very, very good. Yeah. So it takes things like the spacing and the note alignment and the you know, the rhythm and it sort of like beams things in an intuitive way to read. It has very, very, very good um, defaults for that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so it, it works for my needs about as well as I could expect. One thing I do a lot in the music classroom is take real physical sheet music and then I use, uh, there's a handful of scanning apps that will, they're kind of like OCR, but for XML. So they take the notation on the page and then they convert it into an XML, XML, a MIDI or an audio file, which can then be, you know, used for whatever. But most often in my case, I am taking that and then importing it into one of these score programs where I can clean it up a little bit and then maybe add some things, um, maybe transpose it or like write it, you know, take copy and paste it from one instrument to another instrument and then make a worksheet out of it. You know, this kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. And yeah, the flows I really like. The, that's kind of what Dorico, it's a, people call movement sometimes. And what I'm using this for, so in the sub screen, you can add these different flows and have different instruments in each of them if you want to. And because uh, I just do these little short compositions on a regular basis, and I don't want to have a thousand different little projects. Uh, instead, I'm doing like a music journal, like August, like I have a, a August journal. And each day I can put a different flow and just title it with uh, the day's date. And just have this, you know, 30 to 50 bar, you know, you know, diary entry, basically, if you want to uh, say it like that for today. And uh, I really find that kind of clicks really well with me to, to be able to just really elegantly have uh, one, you know, 12, 12 uh, files in a year. Almost. Yeah, sort of unrelated to the to the idea of like what these programs do and don't do. I mean, I, I was sort of as we were talking about that, I think that that's just a very cool, creative exercise to just sort of have this this um you know, to try to almost like write something every day and to then use it. Cause that was not a, a thought that I'd ever had for how to use the flows feature yeah. of Dorico was this idea of like, Hey, let me just have like a little music journal or something that, you know, you're writing in. And yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the point of it is that you can take all of this information and sort of like store it in the same project. Whereas in other programs that might be redundant information, the the best way to I think for for those who are you know have some sort of musical know how and don't really follow the whole flows thing, like uh, if you're if you're like writing a symphony with multiple movements, I think the you know the maybe the like most straightforward way of explaining a flow is like those might have to be separate projects, uh, or it would be one project and you'd have to do a whole lot of fiddling around with layout to get it to look like four separate ideas within one big project. Whereas Dorico sort of has this whole system of understanding that 
um, the different flows, so to speak, of musical thought are independent but related to one another and can sort of be interacted with in their own right but then have this context in the greater whole so you can like drag around and reorder them if you want to Uh, in fact it works the same with players so it thinks of uh, players and instruments as different things like if you're looking at a score in most of these programs player and instrument are not distinguished from one another so if there's a flute part in the score it's assumed there's just someone playing the flute when you go to print the scores and then hand it out to your musicians. Whereas Dorico says, hey, you know, there are times where like you have someone on a gig who is like doubling instruments. So they're playing like flute, tenor sax and alto sax and clarinet. What if we can understand in the score that there's actually one player playing all four of these different instruments in the score? And can we make connections in that way? Musicals will do this all the time. Exactly. No, it's really cool. What are some of your most used keyboard shortcuts in Dorico? Okay, so obviously like changing the duration of the note with the numbers is a big one. And then just like inputting pitch using the letters of the keyboard is kind of like the main entry. Yeah. And then you're able to go up and down octaves as well with some, some extra keyboard shortcut from there, right? I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to forget to say that. Yeah. So um, whatever note is selected orange, this is, a, this is something that I, to this day, still struggle with coming from Sibelius. Because Sibelius, if a note is active and you move the arrow keys up and down, it'll change pitch. Whereas Dorico uses the arrow keys to change which note is selected. And then if you hold mm-hmm. the option key, you can move it up and down on the staff. So uh, like if I, let's say I'm like writing a flute part and the very first note is orange and it's the active note. I can hit right on the keyboard over and over again to ha- you know, p- basically just like move through the different notes of my flute part. And then once I've found one that I want to change, I hold option key and then the up and down arrows to move it up and down. The lines and spaces of the staff holding and then holding down the shift key with the option key uh, or is it command will do an not will jump an octave, which is uh, a pretty useful one as well. I think it's I, I don't want to mess this up. You can look it up maybe if someone actually wants to do this. But something that I'll do often is like I'm working in a band score and I'm making an exercise like a scale exercise sheet for everyone in the class. So I basically need the same notes in all 14 or whatever different instrument voices. And so what I'll do is I'll write it out for flute. And I think it's option command M. It's something with modifier keys and M. But basically what it does is it just takes whatever is on that uh, instrument. And then it just like copies and pastes it onto the the instrument below that. Okay. And then below that. And then below that. And then you can use the transpose thing to make it the right um, octave for them if needed. Correct. Yeah, then I just use option, command, up and down arrow to change the octave so that it's in the right range. And then uh, I use the popovers quite a bit. So shift D for dynamics, I use that. Shift A for rehearsal, adding a rehearsal marking to whatever part of your score is selected. Shift B, as we mentioned earlier, for adding and subtracting bars from the end or from anywhere in your score. Um, Let me look at all the popovers here. There's just so many of them. And there's actually, there's a... Yeah, and there's and there's like two modes on the on the right toolbar. There's like the mode where it's doing the popover, and then there's a different mode where you're like clicking on it instead. Are you talking about the little palette and the keyboard? Yeah, yeah. I think the idea there is that the yeah, like so when you have the keyboard tapped on and you're not det- you're not attached to a keyboard. I'm sorry, <laughs> saying the word keyboard in many different contexts in the same sentence. So when the computer, when the, like say the magic keyboard is not attached to the iPad, and then you want to do a popover, obviously there's no shift key that you can just initiate when you're staring at a a tablet. So you tap that little keyboard icon in the upper right corner, and then the little 
column of icons, those whichever one you tap on, those all represent the popovers. So it's basically a way of initiating the same shortcuts that would be initiated by holding down the shift key on the computer keyboard and then holding down whatever letter that you would want. So like shift B for bar, there's a little icon on the right side of the screen that will get you that same popover for adding and subtracting bars. Okay. Yeah, so you could have it uh, selected to not be the keyboard, but if you're attached to a keyboard, the keyboard shortcut would then just do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's just a handful of these. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I use the um, cl- the clef, the key signature, and the time signature, and the tempo popovers I use all the time for entering those exact things. Yeah, I love with the rhythm uh, with the beats for, per you know, 70 core notes, 70 equals a quarter note, whatever. I love that you can tap out your beat per minute, whatever it is. Um, that's super useful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just baked in with all of these great features. I mean, this is not even to mention the fact that if you are not attached to a keyboard, you have an on-screen piano that you can touch with your fingers. Yeah. How have you found that? Has that been useful? So people who tell me that they get a lot of use out of it are people who are working more with chords than I'm used to yeah. doing. So like, if you want to just have like a triad entered on the screen, just holding like the notes C, E, and G on the on-screen piano keyboard at once, we'll get that. Whereas that's, you know, a handful of other taps and clicks otherwise. Gotcha. And something I'm curious about, uh, I've tried to do this where I have like a cello who's holding like a G and then I want that same cello player to be then doing core notes above that. How do you do that in Dorico? So I don't know if you would like have to write another, basically use the voice feature Mm -hmm. in order to get that to appear. Um, that's a good question. The voice I feature don't... lets you have uh, multiple voices within the same player line. Is that what it's for? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think to myself how I would do that in another program. Like, what would I would do? I would probably would just use like basically just say okay. Like, I would treat it the same way as if I were um, using one treble clef. Yeah, like if I were writing a flute part for two players using the um, you know the same row in the staff. Yeah, because some. Pl- uh, apps have the concept of layers and you have like layer one layer two layer three you can just have different layers of the same safe right right exactly yeah 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 but yeah i'll I'll do some research see how that's done some less obvious toolbar icons are there any that you find helpful i know there's like these scissors that like uh, i'm not quite sure what all these things do because i don't end up using them but some of them may be useful are there any of things in the toolbar that you do find useful that may not be super obvious when you open the app i well i mean so for me i do so much from the keyboard so i on the one hand would say like i don't tap those a lot, but that doesn't mean I'm not using those features just through the mouse or the trackpad or through right. the computer keyboard. Yeah, there, I mean, there's lots of ways to do the same thing, and that, that's one of the kind of the cool things, really, about notation software is that there are so many different, really intuitive and valid methods of note input. So, like having a MIDI keyboard, a mouse, a trackpad, and a computer keyboard all at your disposal, sort of in a row is great because whatever your hand is hovering over when the note that you have in your brain comes to your brain that's the thing that you're going to input the note in uh with if it's you know something that you've really practiced so i for me i try to be pretty equally uh good at you know inputting notes through a piano or through a computer keyboard or a mouse um so but i don't it's clicking around in toolbars is not always the most appealing thing to me it's probably something i should get better at given that it is the primary note put uh, note entry method of the iPad version. Yeah. 
I mean, the basic one. So, I mean, there's like pitch before rhythm, which I know we've talked about a little bit before recording, which is where you determine the note, on, like, you know, the pitch of the note before the rhythm. And then you see it enter on the staff and then you choose the duration of the note. So that toggle is on the left side. Yeah, it's a very important toggle. I didn't know that toggle existed. I just did the preference pane of defaulting and I couldn't figure it out. So yeah, that's a very important toggle. I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand why that's in the preferences and what the difference is between toggling it from the toolbar versus the, the preferences. I will say, by the way, speaking to the preferences is that uh, in Dorico, you have tons of options over how the notation and the layout of the score looks. And those preferences, if you've ever seen them before on the Mac or the windows version, are so dense and so powerful and customizable that when you see them translated to the iPad, it's like kind of blows your mind for a second just to see like the level. I mean, because, you know, it's not like, I think, you know, Photoshop would be an example of a really, really powerful app that was recently brought to the iPad not that long ago. And I think that people were pretty disappointed at what it could and couldn't do at launch. And just to think about this company that has like a smaller team... (laughs) It's what uh, five developers, years, or something like that. yeah, something like that, and like less, many, many less years of development. Just to think about the achievement of getting any one of these professional scoring apps on the iPad with nearly like even half the features <laughs> that they've shipped with is astounding. So yeah, I don't know. It's cool. It's a fun thing to poke around with if you're opening even just the free version of Dorico for the yeah. first time. Yeah, and the free version. I was using that for quite a while, and it's like, I should pay for this. And I am glad I paid for it because I am getting a lot of utility out of some of those extra features that you get from the paid version. And the unlimited players is something I'm using with the flows because if you have one project, I can now have any instrument I want and not be worried about hitting the the threshold. Right, right. The drop-down menu, that that lets you transpose and... Are there things in there that you use frequently? The okay, so the drop by drop down menus. You're talking about the ones, the little that are, triple dot thing. Yeah, I so those are things that I use fairly often on the desktop version. They're just I haven't done enough work with it on iPad yet that I can speak to them. But they more or less work the same way that they do on the desktop. So uh, I do plan on doing more with those things in the near future. I mean, there's just like infinite things <laughs> that right. I can and can't do. The and then of course right next to that is the the little eye icon, which can do some things like change from page view to gallery view, which is actually, I think, something that Sibelius does not have on its current iPad version. It's a way I really like to write. So I, I do appreciate. Yeah, gallery view is what I like to work in. Yeah, I like it a lot. And uh, yeah, you can sort of choose some things about signposts and par numbers. And there's a bunch of like toggle on and off options in there. And then you've got some transposing options. Yeah, I mean, it's at this point, it's almost hard to to think about what is and isn't worth covering about yeah. the Dorico app. It's even I even wrote in my blog post when it shipped, like it's hard to talk about Dorico for iPad because without reviewing the desktop version because it really is. Yeah, <laughs> the it's pretty version. much the same app except for a couple little things that are missing. Right, and and that's not. I mean, I know I said earlier that the Pro version on desktop, it, like that, there is not a tier of the iPad version that that means that. But when I say that, I'm I'm talking about like really specific features of the app. I'm not talking about the core experience of the app, like. The experience of like inputting notes, uh, you know, through the on-screen piano keyboard, or like through the computer keyboard, or like entering like setup mode, write mode, play mode, like all of these things are, regardless of like every single possible tool and option available to the app, these these core features are in even the free version. So yeah, it's a desktop class app on iPads. One of the one of the few I'd say that's like a true the desktop professional level software on your iPad. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that statement a lot. It's impressive that it's happened in our corner of the world. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I feel really lucky that, that, that these two programs released so close to each other, you know, and I, it's, and they will be, it's good for, um, competitions because they'll be more encouraged to be better than the other one. Yeah. I, I think that there, to some extent there will be some of that. And I think that competition is good. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'd like to see both of these programs do some things, add some things in the future. I think I spoke a little bit about what I'd like to see from each of them, but yeah, I, th- I think as like a 1.0, um, they definitely have taken some different approaches to design and, you know, those, whether or not those are for you, the user are going to be some somewhat personal. I mean, a, a good analogy to since, and I'll only say this only because of the past week, I've really been digging into the current um, darling of the Apple community, Obsidian, yep, <laughs> which, sure. is, uh, which is like an Electron app. So it has a whole lot of quirks that don't make it feel very native to any of the Apple platforms, but it feels very, very much true to itself and the same on all different devices. And, you know, I think that there's something to be said for that, maybe being like a, a really good choice in the scoring and notation community. Just, you know, having, especially when you're dealing with musicians who oftentimes don't want to learn something new on their iPad. And there's also a way to make that eighth note extended into like a quarter note and a whole note. Exactly. Right. Right. So if you hold the shift key while holding the option key and then you hit the right key it'll basically extend the length of the note by that same value so like if i have the eighth note selected in the grid and then i hold shift option and then the right it'll turn that eighth note into a quarter note and then if i hit the right key again it'll turn it into a dotted quarter note and then a half note and it basically just adds so shift shift option does that and then just plain option moves it is that what what the other way is that's right okay gotcha and if you just accidentally select the wrong like sometimes i'll be typing some eighth notes and i'll need a quarter note and, um, you know, I just like tap the wrong number and I get a, you know, like a 16th note instead, maybe. And it's really easy once you input that rhythm because I'm a pitch before, uh, I'm sorry, a rhythm before pitch user. So, uh, when, you know, if I do get the wrong rhythm, all I have to do is hold the option key and then just hit the right arrow or the left arrow until I get the duration that I needed. Sorry, shift, shift option. I'm mixing them up, but you know what I mean? Shift plus option. And then the right arrow will extend the length of the note. Sorry, one more. If you do the up and down arrow while holding option, I told you before that'll move the pitches up and down, but it does that diatonically. So whatever key area you've set your key signature to, if you hold shift, it'll move the note up and down chromatically, which is also really useful. Oh, that's super useful. And what's the process for changing like an f sharp to a g flat is there a way to override what dorico thinks is best yes there's a handful of ways um and that's the cool thing about dorico is that without getting too far into the weeds um you can of course do uh, infinite things in engrave mode so you can make anything look like you want it to regardless really of what the actual pitch is that you input in the right mode but of course you can also you know you can click on the note and then you can like just you know completely go through the process of re-entering like say you typed in an f sharp well you can like go to where that note is with your cursor and you can type you know the flat and type the flat symbol and then the letter g uh and by say t- saying type the flat symbol what i really mean is just selecting it from the computer keyboard um which is i believe the plus or the no it's the minus button okay um has whatever note whatever letter you type will become a flatted note and uh so that's one way to do it and then there's like a handful of uh in the notation and layout and engraving settings you can like tweak a lot of things that dorico does with how it interprets things like enharmonics things like the way that notes are beamed like for example if you want all of your eighth notes to be beamed like every four notes has a beam at the top you can select that or if you want it to like like there's just all sorts of things you can do because one of the things that dorico was built from the ground up based on is this idea that the 
results that you get are going to be extremely legible without having to do a whole lot of tweaking, but then there's endless tweaking that you can do. So um, for whatever reason, like I think Dorico makes excellent choices about how it beams things, how it spaces things apart, uh, how it makes things legible. But if you wanted to do something uh, like take eighth notes in six, eight time and have them beamed in pairs instead of like th- every three, uh, you can do that kind of stuff as well. Okay. It takes yeah. a, little, a little bit of time to kind of learn because it's in a sense, it's kind of like, like the notation and the layout and the engraving options are kind of like three different. And then of course there's the actual, like there's the preferences of the app itself. And then those are kind of like four different places. I don't know if anyone listening has ever used pro tools. There's like three or four different places that you kind of find all the settings. There's like a whole settings area of the app just for like ins and outs of the program. And, um, the door goes a little bit like that. Like I found that the, the layout notation, like all the, all of those things that have the word options after them are ways that you can sort of customize the behavior and the look of things. Uh, and then the, the settings themselves offer you all sorts of more uh, customizations. Personally, I kind of like to have one setting screen, but you know, once, once you get acclimated to the idea uh, that all of the stuff you want to control is in these like three or four areas of the app, then you're good to go. Gotcha. And then for going over and adding like articulations, can you use the cursor like the left and right arrow to like going through note by note and then is there a keyboard shortcut from there to just oh this note i have selected uh i'm gonna make it staccato is there like shift a or something to add articulations or what's the way to quickly go through note by note and kind of add those markings to it it's sort of a it's a toggle and i do tend to do things like slurs and ties and well, maybe usually ties i do on my first round since they're a little bit more associated with the duration of the notes, but mm-hmm. things like slurs, uh, accents, staccato, uh, I do those from the keyboard. And if I think to do them first, you know, you can type the keyboard shortcut for a staccato marking is the right bracket. And if you type it before you input the pitch, then it'll have that once the note displays on the screen. Uh, but what I, what I sometimes do is what you're saying is I just kind of like, once I'm done, I'm writing the melody, uh, I'll pay, you know, I'll move through the notes with the right and left arrow keys. And then just any time the note that I want to have a staccato marking is selected, I'll hit the right bracket and it'll add it right on top. Oh, nice. So you don't have to have that that overlay thing that we talked about for dynamics for doing articulations, at least the common ones. Yeah. So there's uh, an area in the app that is sort of like a panel that slides out from the left and it has a bunch of different note values, things like a half note, a quarter note, an eighth note. And underneath of that, there is an area for you know, the natural sign, the flat sign, the sharp sign, a slur, uh, marcato, tenuto, staccato, accent, and then, uh, you know, a couple of other articulations that are less common. And all of those have buttons on the computer keyboard that you can type either before inputting the note mm-hmm. or after the fact once it's selected orange. Okay, very cool. And if I'm selecting like a bunch of notes all at once on, I think Mac, it, the cursor behaves kind of how you'd expect it to, where you're dragging, you're clicking and dragging to select a bunch of stuff. Do you know the translation for how that works on iPad? I, I think it's a bit different from what I've played around with. Yeah, so on the Mac, I can click with the cursor in a, a white space. You know, that that is not a, a note that's been input or some kind of symbol. And I can drag to get, you know, kind of like a, a selection square so to speak Mm -hmm. um and then once i lift my finger off the mouse button then everything i had selected will be orange and there actually is something like that on the ipad it's just that because the finger is going to you know because tapping the finger with your screen uh sometimes is is an active gesture you have to hold your finger first and then a little square will animate wherever your finger is it even kind of has a little bouncing wiggling kind of animation to it to let you know that it's happening and then you from there 
you drag similarly to what you want, and then it'll be selected orange. Okay. Very cool. And something I noticed with the Norco, there's actually a commenting system. And I'm not sure what kind of creative uses you've found of this. Is this for you're sending a Dorco file to a student and marking up on, you know, if they were in, say, a one-on-one student with practice, you could give them notes about things? Or how do you find yourself using this? Uh, I, I actually don't okay. really <laughs> do it. Um, option C will create a comment. And it just opens up a text box. You know, I'm going to do it right now. And you can just kind of click comment. And what it does is it just sort of like uh, puts a little, almost like a little speech bubble above that area that was selected in the score. Uh, and then you can click on it to see it. It's pretty, it's, a, it's an elegant solution because, you know, I, I used to do uh, a little bit more of this when I was using Sibelius. Um, and those comments are, were very much in Sibelius, were kind of imitating the visual look of like what you might see in Microsoft Word. And then Dorico is a little bit more discreet, um, kind of trying to get out of your way yeah. a little bit more when you're writing the score. And then, of course, you can double click on the, uh, the graphic of the word bubble to see what the comment actually is. And then if you want, there's a hold on, let me for whatever reason, it's grayed out. And I don't know why you can filter all of your comments once created. Um, and you can, of course, you can toggle them on and off as well. So you can basically just say in the view options from on the Mac, it's from the menu bar. Um, but it's basically it's just a, a toggle that you can toggle on and off. Okay. Yeah. And I'm curious about the future of Dorico with being a performance tool. Now it's on the iPad of like a conductor slash composer beaming out parts to like every iPad in the room. And, you know, you register, oh, I'm the, you know, trumpet one. And it just knows to go there. And um even like uh, some programs I know will sync up from a conductor and where they're at, I'll, I'll, you know, it get, can get pretty deep with performing from an iPad and score syncing in kind of cool ways. Yeah, I think um, StaffPad definitely has the most s- sort of like complete idea about how they want to handle that. Because, you know, StaffPad has this like complimentary reader app where you can have a bunch of musicians put it on their music stand. And then someone who's actually looking at the score document in the actual like full StaffPad iPad app can kind of like beam, you know, the, the individual parts to the different iPads who are in the room on the same network using this reader app. And what's cool is like a lot of the changes happen in real time. So like I can, someone can say, hey, this this note is like out of my the range of my instrument and the, you know, the person who's directing the rehearsal or the person who's sitting at the iPad with StaffPad open to the document can basically just like make that edit directly onto the score and then beam it back out. So there's, there's never any round tripping to an application like Fourscore, which is for me anyway, is my, you know, sheet music reading, annotating and sort of library management app of choice. Uh, and, and of course, Fourscore is more just like, it's so much more than this. So I, I feel like this is uh, diminishes it to some, some, some extent, but I explain it to people who've never inter- encountered it before as just kind of a, a glorified PDF reader with music specific features to yeah. it. So it is really designed to open and work with files that have been like completed and then exported to a file like PDF where it's not, you know, you're not intending to like be able to transpose or edit the notes of the rhythms or really do much with the layout of it once it's been saved. You're just kind of intending still to you know, once it gets into something like Fourscore, you're, you can like draw on it, you can add metadata to it, you can organize it in a set list. Um, but, you know, to my knowledge, StaffPad is the one of these programs that has that sort of like integrated workflow between the editing tool and the reading tool. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, very curious to see how these other tools will evolve and if that will become a thing. Uh, I was just thinking the other day uh, that it'd be really amazing if some MIDI keyboard people made a uh, you know a full-size keyboard which they have these mini full-size keyboards but 
if it had another component with like a number pad and some of the keyboard shortcuts kind of built into uh, like above the keyboard area. So you could just have an iPad sitting on top of, you know, where the sheet music would be and you can like connect over Bluetooth and it might even have two Bluetooth connections to your iPad from that one device of like, here's the QWERTY slash number pad connection. And here's the MIDI connection. And you have this like kind of high end piano that can, can, can be used as like a kind of composing tool right there. Right. Yeah, exactly. Actually, real quick, before you move on to something else, I a keyboard shortcut I told you earlier in the conversation, I remembered it. I'm in my settings right now. And um, it's it's the I just wanted to say the actual name of this feature is the the one I was talking about earlier where I have like a flute part at the top of a score and then like an oboe part below it and then like a saxophone yeah. below that. And I want to copy. So the actual option for that in Dorico is called move to staff above or below. And then there's actually also an option to copy to staff above or below. So if you want to take something and then move it to the staff below it, it's option M. And then if you, uh, I actually added a custom keyboard to do the other option, which is actually to copy it, not to move it. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, for me, I hold the command key and the option key and another M and that will, you know, take the flute part and bounce it down to the oboe. Do you do any other custom keyboard shortcuts within Dorico or is that kind of your one that you kind of customize for your app? I wait for Dorico, I, w- I wait for my process to inform me mm-hmm. what I'm doing a lot of that's getting in my way. I don't try to go out of my way. Yeah. So like some, sometimes um, certain kinds of bar lines, like repeat signs, uh, I like to have shortcuts for, like where basically where I click a bar line and then uh, I, you know, have a little one or two, key, you know, keystroke kind of command that adds a particular kind of bar line or repeat. Uh, but you can also easily do those things through uh, one of the popover menus as well. So all the popovers have these like things that handle, you know, your first and your second endings. And I can even send you a link to, there's a great document online that Dorico manages that is just a, it's a huge PDF of all of the possible text-based commands you can enter into popovers and what musical notation they result in gotcha yeah very cool and then something i've been running into especially with like cello and some of the other instruments i'm writing for is i'm inputting notes that have a lot of ledger lines either above or below the staff and um what's kind of the best practice here of inputting these notes should i be having all these ledger lines and then correcting within the kind of engraving mode to make them more readable for the player or should I be input the, putting them lower and then adding like the 8VA sign to like fix that at the time or what do you do for this? How do you handle this in Dorico? I, I think like if you want to know specifically how you do a particular feature, it's going to vary on your method. But I think uh, more broadly, someone would just want to ask like, what is the musical context and the reason why uh, you would want to do that in the first place? So is it like like I guess using um, for readability mainly, like so the player's not looking at all these thousand ledger lines. Right. I mean, yeah, I would just defer to, and it's been like a hot minute since I've been um, in an a, an orchestral arranging class. Yeah. So what what cellists like specifically? Right. Is is maybe not like something I'm prepared to just uh, spit out of my mouth. But basically, I would I would look to the conventions of what does a performer want to read in the context that you're composing or arranging for, and then I would do that. So I mean, you know, most cellists I know above a certain amount of ledger lines, they want to see the clef change so that they're reading within a comfortable uh, you know zone at all times. And cellists are in particular are very very comfortable you know reading in the treble clef, for example. Yeah. So if things go like kind of high up there you know that's something that i would do a clef change in that case gotcha um, and bassoon can go the tenor clef and uh, certain occasions yeah that's what i that's what i would do as far as you know adding 
like an octave marking, uh, that would be certainly another option. And those are, again, those are all popover commands as well. So one of the things I love is just how many things you can do without taking your fingers off of the computer keyboard. Gotcha. Yeah. I think you can see why this is like, as far as iPad releases are concerned, why this is resonating with me is because I really just, I have found that the computer keyboard is just such a fast way to input notes if you take the time to learn what to do. Um, and so because these keyboard shortcuts and even the custom keyboard commands all translate to the Dorico iPad version, all I have to do is just recall the same ones I know. I don't know them all yeah. <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, but the ones that I do know are the same on all platforms. Yeah, and the brilliant thing, it's like, it doesn't matter that's not a Mac. It, it, it's basically the same app and you have the same interfaces with the keyboard and you just... You only have benefits of adding the touchscreen for when you do want to touch the screen and do stuff that way as well. Clefts and octave lines, by the way, uh, I'm looking in the document now. Those are all under the, that's like its own popover menu. So if you hold the shift key and then press the letter C, for, which is, you know, in Dorico uh, terms means, you know, it stands for the word clef. Then you have a whole lot of things you can type. So if you type in the letter G, the word treble, that'll take, uh, that'll add a treble clef to your score. Oh, nice. Um, the letter... Yeah, the letter F or the word bass will add a bass clef. Tenor clef is the letters CT, or you can just type the word tenor. Yeah. Um, and so yes, you can see like some of these have a little bit of a syntax that you got to remember, but a lot of them also just use you know like natural language. So like typing the word treble, like treble is what you want, right? You want the treble clef. So remembering uh, to type in the word treble isn't too hard. For me, I sometimes get a little bit confused about which popover I want, but that mm -hmm. just could be my own inexperience. Yeah, the more you use it, the more you'll kind of learn. Will pop over to use right and there there are some conflicting commands and that's the reason why there are as many popovers as there are like there are certain words that if you type them into one popover they do one thing and then they do another thing if typed into another popover so i, I totally get why they're segmented the way that they are so uh octave below is treble 8ba or you could type g 8d okay okay that's after yeah. again after hitting shift right. c yeah i mean and there's just like so many things like an unpitched percussion Clef would be P-E-R-C for perk, mm -hmm. percussion. Four string tab, tab four, invisible clef. You just type in the word invisible. Tons of tons of things you can do in there. There's a whole chord symbol popover, which is shift Q, which I guess they didn't have. C was used for clef, so they used Q for chord. That's a pretty good one. Like you can type in like the inversion, the quality, the interval, or alterations. That's not to mention that there's also an interval popover, which is shift I, which then you can type in uh, like if you type in shift I and then in the little, you know, popover menu, you type in the number three, it'll add a third on top of whatever notes you had selected before you initiated the popover. Which that's been super fun to use as I've been writing some piano stuff. That's been just pretty, pretty nice to have in there. Another good one is if you type in a lowercase m for minor before the three then every interval will be exactly a minor third above the selected pitches. Oh, nice. Um, reg regardless of key signature. And then, of course, a capital M for major will do the same thing, but add major thirds above all of the selected pitches. Oh, that's really cool. If you're writing some horror music, you can uh, I imagine A4 would work for augmented uh, fourth, maybe? Um, let's see. I'm looking in the settings now. So actually, I can just, yeah, uh, um, aug. Well, okay, so then you've got... Sorry, I'm, I'm looking still on the chord symbol yeah. related popover, which you can make you can make a chord augmented by typing AUG for augmented or the plus symbol. Yeah. Well, you can. Okay, so one other thing that I commonly do is like uh, when I have the interval popover, like if you type three, as I said, it'll add a third to every selected note. But you can type in 
the comma, uh, a comma followed by other intervals and get a bunch in a row. So like if I have th- three, three comma five, we'll turn every selected note into a, you know, like a little triad yeah. with a third and a fifth stocked on, stacked on top of it. Okay. Yeah. So you can kind of build out chords in that way versus having to enter the notes. So you can basically build out your melody and then from there add the um, intervals on top of that after you figure out what your main melody is going to be. Yeah. What was the one you asked about a second ago? Augmented fourth. So could you have like a C and F sharp uh, as an example uh, with the interval by putting like maybe A4? Yeah, let's let's just find out. So I'm going to select here. I go to the interval popover. Okay, let me do it to a single pitch and be less confused. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what just happened on my screen? Uh, okay, so I've got a C selected. Yeah, AUG4 as an augmented AUG4. fourth above the okay. selected note. Yeah, awesome. Cool. That's the very uh, famous. Uh, da, 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 uh, you'll hear it in um, a lot of movies. Augmented force. <laughs> it's like a war, war cry. Uh, you know. And then something I've been curious about. So I'm a wind player. I don't write much percussion because it kind of confuses me a bit. <laughs> uh, the virtual instruments. Is that making the process of writing percussion easier for you, having that as an input method versus kind of the virtual pianos and things that aren't exactly percussion? So I've already got a couple of ways around this. Um, the first thing I'll say is that, I, again, I kind of am comfortable with the computer keyboard, and Dorico actually handles computer keyboard. Actually, every method of percussion note input is, I think, handled in a superior way by Dorico. Um, a lot of times I type in the right keyboard you know, um, commands for the notes, you know, on, you know, whatever, whatever line or space on the staff I'm trying to input, mm-hmm. like say, uh, like a hi-hat will be like, you know, like an X, uh, symbol with, you know, a stem facing upward, like usually like right above the staff or like on the top line of the staff kind of, there's a lot that one of the problems of course is how, ma- how many inconsistencies there are with drum set notation. Yeah. So with percussion, let me see if I'm explaining this right. So like at the beginning of the part, it'll like have the list of instruments and each line on the staff will pertain to a different instrument. So if you're playing like three instruments, you'll have each line as a separate instrument if it's unpitched. Right. So right. For, exactly. So like, for example, um, if I type in like, uh, even though a drum set part, for an example, would use the percussion clef, uh, you would still type in pitches similar to a treble clef to get the symbol on the exact line of space you would want. So like if I type the letter G, I'm going to get uh, an X note head that appears where a G would appear above the staff of the treble clef. And then it's going to have a stem facing up. So basically that's what's going to get my hi-hat. I'm mentioning drum set notation specifically because it's usually one of the most cumbersome percussion instruments to input yeah. in a notation editor. And um, I think it's handled super well by Dorico. It's actually one of the things that makes it great is because you moving the arrow keys left and right can move you along a grid that you designate. So you can have it move either an eighth note or a 16th note. This makes it a little bit more precise to see, you know, because sometimes drums are uh, super commonly perceived as in like a, maybe like someone is used to coming from a DAW where they have a MIDI editor or they're used to conceiving of rhythm in some other kind of way other than traditional t- notation. This works super well for those kinds of users as well, uh, because you're just moving along a grid before you actually input the note. But yeah, then you when you input the note, it's just using the same letters as the treble clef staff. So if I use uh, a C, for example, that's going to be the third space on the staff, which is where the snare drum would go. And what's great is that let's just say like do like a basic beat, like you know, like some kind of rock drum set beat. If I input eighth notes on the hi hat on the you know right above the staff and then i go back and i input the snare drums on beat two and beat four dorico does a a really great job of getting the default 
look of that to, to look the same way I would want to read it as a drum set player. Um, whereas I've seen a lot of really, really, really funky stuff <laughs> in other scorers. Yeah. And to come back to your question of, of input, um, the iPad version of the app introduces, in addition to the keyboard and ta- I'm sorry, the keyboard and the fretboard methods of touch input that I mentioned before, um, they also add a drum pad input method where basically you just get a grid of squares that you can sort of custom, you can drag and drop them around in the order that you want. You can, um, you know, have like basically it's similar to like, if you have a, a MIDI keyboard that has like a grid of rubber squares that you can hit to trigger the drum instruments. It's just a little bit more of a natural way yeah. of playing a MIDI drum set. Yeah. I would love if they took it further. Like if you had a timpani, if it just like the drum thing would turn into a virtual timpani, I'm not sure if it does that. I haven't played around with that and uh, making it more, custom to whatever percussion that is you know you're inputting at that time i I don't think any plugin that i have ever seen that is just to use timpani as an example actually looks like timpani and (laughs) lets you interact with it in the same way um i'm and i'm thinking of like GarageBand plugins logic plugins superior drummer plugins like contact plugins that i have on the mac and none of them uh i think that i'm aware of anyway is there a reason for that is it just doesn't make sense to do that i mean there's there's just really i guess the only way it would really work is just if you're trying to like there's no kind of responsiveness to a touchscreen in particular that's going to get you better results from touching something that looks like yeah timpani versus a square on the screen so um yeah i mean just four squares that move from left to right is has how i would organize that and do you get a pitch uh pick which pitch that uh square represents for the timpani uh when you can is there a configuration aspect of this? Let's let's find out. So I'm going to go to, and I'll walk you through this because uh, the keyboard shortcuts are super fast, even on iPad. So Command One goes to Setup mm-hmm. Mode, which is where I can add players and instruments. Shift P adds a new player to the score, and then I can just type in the word timpani to find it amongst all the instrument options. And then I'm going to add it to my score. Command Two goes back into Write Mode, and then I'm going to go ahead and go to my um, the staff where uh, the timpani appears, and then hit Enter to input notes. And then I'm going to select at the bottom of the screen the drum pad option which is sort of towards the lower left all right so drum pads only work with unpitched percussion it's telling me so timpani yeah okay so you just use like a piano keyboard probably right yeah exactly and that would work for me pretty well too of course being someone with lots of professional timpani training i know that i'm not gonna just play some wacky bass line and expect someone reading it to (laughs) right you're not gonna have like 12 12 notes on the timp you're not gonna be no timpanist will have like 12 timpanis around them well Unless right. it's some crazy movie score and they, they budget that or something. And in this virtual instruments area, there's like this like properties window that has a lot of different little settings. And I haven't really figured out what this is exactly for. Yes. And I do. I'm not 100% sure. I do believe the technical term they, they call that window is maybe has the word properties in it. it, it yeah. It's, it's basically some some general score properties that control the score. And of course, in those many, many different notation and layout options, you can designate certain kinds of preferences to apply to every score you ever open in Dorico. But then you've got some per score based stuff that appears there at the bottom. And so that's just going to be things like like notes, like kind of notes in rest position, how they are impacted. One of the things I commonly do down there is at least before I knew how to change the option permanently, is that the default in Dorico is to, when you add a rehearsal marking, is to give it a letter. And I more commonly want it to just uh, show the number of the measure the student is on. Because that's, that's for, for a lot of reasons, I think that that's easiest f- to read. But I also, a lot of the, the band scores that my middle school students are playing are that way. Yeah. So uh, 
I generally would change that setting down there on the properties for what the rehearsal markings look like. But then I learned that you can actually just permanently change them, you know, gotcha. the whole score without, without tweaking that. One thing I like to do is obviously play back what I'm writing. I'm kind of the guy that doesn't want to see the fancy Cubasis kind of look to it. I know some people like that and some people find it handy, but I find it kind of difficult to actually get back to a certain measure in my music to hit play when I'm in write. Is there a simple way to do that or am I stuck going to play mode then clicking back to write mode to look at the notation? Uh, so yeah, this is an area of frustration for me is that um, the transport, is in, which is in the upper right corner, doesn't have a lot of ways to choose where you start. So like one thing you can do is if I hit play, for example, a couple of measures might play. And then if I hit stop, let's just say around like measure three, I can hit the, you know, the, what is called the rewind button or rewind to beginning, which is to the left of the play yeah. button. Um, and then that will go back to the beginning, but uh, there are ways to move. You know what? This is probably in the keyboard shortcuts. Let's just search for the word rewind. So in the um, play options, so there's only one type of rewind that's keyboard shortcut customizable, and the default is F7 or number and then minus key. Um, and that is not the same as what happens when you hover over the rewind to beginning a flow button, which is to the left of the play button. That's a number plus the plus button, which will you know go back to the beginning. So how you go to a particular measure, spacebar to start and stop playback. Playback will start from the current position of the playhead. Shift plus space to play from the previous start position. Shift alt space will start playback from the beginning of the flow. Make a selection and then press P to start playback just from that rhythmic position. Make a selection on more than one staff and press P to play just the ones that are selected and then press alt plus p to move the playhead to the current selection that's what we're looking for right alt plus p yeah, yeah. okay so like so you're saying that you would want to say okay like i want to start the playback from measure three you stick you know you take the mouse uh and you click you know on the first note of measure yep. three. yeah so it looks like that would be the one you would want is alt plus p in fact let's just see if that works yeah because constantly i'd be you know let's go in the play mode and it, that has a very nice draggable cursor of where i can start playing and i'd be going back and forth between write and play to kind of get where i need to be now i'm wondering if hold on i'm, I'm in write mode because the key editor is the new feature that shows the piano roll mm -hmm. underneath the notation and you can actually select playback from the key editor just by basically clicking oh so so on ipad it might be simple it's just to have that down below as like a virtual instrument because yeah most of the time i just have that window down below just hidden away to have more score on the, the screen but that would be a way about it as well and, and being someone who doesn't interact with this software through touch as much as i think the dorico team designed the app to be used i i anticipate that i will use this key editor more often by far than i will use any of like like the on-screen piano or the on-screen fretboard or any the drum pads, any of these other things that can appear in that bottom part of the screen. Yeah, it's kind of funny all the like touch optimizations that these developers do, which makes sense because this is an iPad and you should be able to use this with just in tablet mode. But I think you know I'll, I'll be using this mainly as you would on the Mac with the keyboards uh, and MIDI keyboards and trackpads and not touching the screen so much. Right and. Anything else about write mode itself, like the way you get stuff into this app and 
and manipulate the app within write mode before we move on to engrave mode. Yeah, uh, for me, again, it's just like duration and pitch comes first. I do a, a sweep through. Like, let's just say, like one common thing that I'll do in Dorco is like take a jazz band piece that my jazz band is playing, but we've got some horns and some tubas and some flutes in our jazz band. And I don't want to turn them away from the opportunity of playing jazz, but it's only more recently that young jazz literature is including all of these different band instruments. So for some of my older music, what I'll have to do is uh, often, t- you know, recreate uh, one of the parts from the score and then, you know, transpose it so that it's a flute part. So, so you know, sometimes let's just say I want the the first alto saxophone part to be doubled in the flute. Or yeah. at least I want that to be the, the basis of where I start for my flute arrangement. Um, I'll re-input the notes. And yeah, I mean, it's typically, like I said before, I'll do the pitch and the rhythm and then I'll come back and do a sweep of the articulation and the slurs, then what I'll typically do is come back and add the dynamics and then the first and the second endings. And then, I, to, uh, to be honest with you, uh, the defaults are so good for most of my u- use cases that I don't often go into engrave mode. But engrave mode is definitely a place where you can do a whole lot of things. Um, the you know the primary um, idea that I think someone would want to get comfortable with who wants to start doing some customization is the idea of frames. Uh, and there's a whole lot you can do with this that so this is this is where the iPad and the Mac Windows versions start to kind of like uh, diverge a little bit from one another because you do have some of the engraved features on the iPad, even though the highest paid tier of the iPad version is comparable to a Mac Windows version that does not have engraved mode at all <laughs> on the desktop. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And. I have no idea what the frame mode is. I, I understand music systems and like doing like basically if you're talking about a written word like pair line breaks almost right. But frames, um, what are what Storico consider a frame, and you know what does engraved mode enable you to do there? Yeah, so I'm just going to literally read you their definition because I think it's better and more concise than I would explain it. Um, so frames allow you to position your music, additional text, and graphics anywhere inside the margins of the page. Frames are rectangular boxes that can be positioned inside the page margins that have been defined for a layout. In engraved mode, you can see and adjust the frames according to your needs. In Dorico Pro, there are a few types of frames. The first one is musical frames that show the music of the selected players and flows. You can also do one that's a text frame, which allows you to enter text and text tokens. And then uh, the third is a graphic frame that allows you to load an image or an illustration into various formats. So let's say you want to stick a graphic on your score, something that's very non-traditional notation. Let's just say you want to have, uh, you're producing something for like a young group and you want to have a cute picture, like the, the yeah. you know, short piano solo for a beginning pianist and it's you know called like a day in the snow and you want to have like a cartoon image of like some kids playing in the snow and you know in the background of where the title appears uh you would take you know some sort of graphic file with that image that's living on your computer and then you could define basically a square box in engrave mode that would you would insert that image to and then you would be able to resize and drag around that box uh and then that image would not be something that like when you're in write mode clicking it you know, if you're trying to click like into the title to change the title, you wouldn't be able to accidentally click into that image by mistake or move it or something mm-hmm. because that frame is like only something that can be edited or worked with in engrave mode. Gotcha. Yeah. And something I was just thinking about back to write mode for a second. Is it possible to have, so say you're doing some kind of abstract music, you have one player, 5-4, and another player, say they're in 4-4. Is that possible to have simultaneous different um, time signatures across different instruments? Yes, but I need to look it up. Okay. <laughs> to tell you how to do it. Yeah. That, and that might be an engraved mode thing. One of, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Dorico is that 
it actually uh, the desktop version anyway does not default to a time signature so you're just sort of like freely oh writing interesting with duration and pitch yeah and i actually wonder if they're going to change that in the next version of dorico because the ipad version has kind of like a little um like oh, when you create a new score it has a little screen that pops up that asks you some of those things that maybe if you've used finale or sibelius yeah it forced me to add i think a time signature to add more measures to my score on the ipad yeah and if you're com- someone who's coming from sibelius you might be used to this idea of like starting a score is going to ask you some of that basic information before you even see the document and i i wonder if um you know i didn't ask daniel when he was on my show about that but i would imagine that part of that is to just simplify the experience for new users to the program because i i do expect that a lot of people will come to dorico for ipad who are not dorico or even not not even using like any of the major professional right. apps on desktop yeah. um so i i wonder if that'll come to the mac i mean to be, to be totally honest like there's a lot of things about dorico that i respect like the because they very carefully considered every single one of these detailed options which is what i respect so much about them that that plus of course their transparency as developers they really keep their user base uh, aware of what the things are that they're planning unless of course they're trying to surprise the community yeah something like this ipad app for example but yeah so so one of the things that i think you know that i that even though it's something i respect about the dorico design that just does not work for me personally is this idea that there's really really common musical information that i need as a middle school teacher that i have to add every single time because some of that some of those options for creating the document aren't there so like let's be real like i do a lot of four four time in middle school sure so, yeah that's like uh, that's what you, yeah probably see but it's also it's not <laughs> yeah a lot of that stuff um and so so more you know to be able to do more with custom templates is of course another thing i would love to see from the program down the road uh, just being able to have some things like one of the things I do most commonly, it really like more than anything else, is I just need to make a four to sixteen measure example of something that's going to be embedded maybe in a a slide of a keynote presentation to my class or maybe in a worksheet. Um, but I'm I'm building the worksheet in a different program like a design or a or a word processing you know program and i just need to like take a little musical excerpt and type it into dorico get it looking nice but then basically take it out of there and put it into something else and uh, so commonly i'm in four four time in c major you know in treble clef and there's still uh, a few more clicks and taps to get a score set up that mm-hmm. way than i would like there to be um i realize i'm a little bit of an edge case but music educators are certainly uh a, a big target audience of this kind of yeah. software so um, we'll see. I mean, I did, I did, I don't remember if it made it onto the air of my interview with Daniel Spreadberry, but of course I asked him amongst all of the native iPad features I would love to see come to Dorico. I asked him about Siri shortcuts cause I'm a big shortcuts user. Yeah. And I was just about to ask about that with, uh, as you know, Sibelius is more iPad native. So I'm curious uh, what kind of shortcuts you could think up for these kind of apps. For, so that's, it's funny you say that. So like there's, for me, it would be something really, really simple and basic, like, uh, create a new score in four, four time. Uh, in C major with treble clef staff, you know, or maybe like uh, having some sort of template, like here's a string quartet template. And rather than going through the options in the hub to set up a new score, maybe I just want to tap one button in Siri shortcuts and then have Dorico automatically open a new copy of a score with that set of instruments in that key, in that time signature. Yeah. Uh, that that would be the kind of document based stuff that would help my flow. But there's, of course, in the um, desktop version of Dorico, there's these like really powerful macros you can automate. Um, and, I, and I've actually been thinking of getting more into this because, you know, to come back to adding intervals, that's something that in Sibelius, I actually really appreciate you being able to just highlight some notes and then type the number three without needing to even use 
a popover first. So like that same action of taking, let's just say an E on the staff and then hitting uh, shift I for the interval popover and then the number three and then enter. In Sibelius, you just highlight the note and hit the number three and that's it. Uh, I think on the iPad version, it's shift three because iPad, the iPad version of Sibelius repurposes the number keys um, to change the note duration since there's no keypad as there is expected to be in the desktop version. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so, so what I, one of the things I've been thinking of toying with, and I'll have to get back to you after the recording to let you know how it goes, is just to basically create a little macro in Dorico to see if I can get the action of holding shift I, typing in the number three, and then hitting enter, basically just getting that down to one key. And I, I think it would probably be possible, but unfortunately, macros do not translate to the iPad version, at least not yet. Yeah. Something with engraved mode I'd love if Dorico could eventually do is for more abstract music is uh, be able to manipulate the thickness of the staves. So you could like gradually have the stave lines go from thin to thick. And I, I did this in um, college with, uh, I had a five-tipped, nib dipping pen and i would use that to indicate um like um the tempo almost where i don't have tempo markings but the the line gets thicker it gets slower for the music and thinner as it gets faster and that was like kind of an abstract way to convey that stuff Uh, i don't know if they'd ever branch into kind of weirder stuff like that for engraved mode but uh, i don't know just came to mind I don't know about having that. I mean, I think you can customize that kind of thing in engraved mode, but to have it gradually get thicker in a way that was almost... Because what you're describing is you need to have almost uh, like an artistic level of control over what that looks like. And I almost wonder if that would just be best suited to a pen. Right. Um, (laughs) Yes. But Dorica was built from the ground up to be ultimately more flexible, to not be constrained by some of these conventions of more traditional musical styles. And that's precisely one of the reasons why they don't actually give you a key signature or a time signature when you boot it up, is they just want you to be kind of freely flowing with your musical thought and then uh, not restricted by some of those conventions. Right, yeah. Dorco uh, supporting of third-party audio unit virtual instruments and effects. So this is a feature that you get with that paid version of Dorco and... I know some other apps kind of use this. I'm not sure if you have a good way of explaining what kind of virtual instruments you can get into Dorco, how this enhances playback. Like, are we able to have some pretty high-end performances um, because of this? Or what what kind of capabilities does this open up? I think the sky is the limit within the plugins and sample libraries that are available to the platform. So let's take, for example, something like Dorico on the Mac. The Mac version is you're going to be able to take any instrument in your score and you're going to be able to use any kind of software plugin, like any kind of VST or audio unit plugin that you would use in a digital audio workstation. So for example, I have, you know, a a plugin suite made by native instruments and they have this huge bundle of software instrument plugins that you can buy from them. And I have, I forget which version, maybe like 10 or 11 I have, and it's called, um, what do they call it? Complete native instruments. Complete is what it's called. And one of the, things that comes with this package is a sampler called contact which basically you can load libraries of instrument samples into and then have them become the sounds that your midi input device plays so for example i can you know uh, load up a sample of some orchestral strings or maybe of a small string quartet or maybe some um like cinematic kind of tribal drums to you know if i want to go full-on hans zimmer with what i'm doing uh and then i can basically plug those into different tracks of my project and then use my you know my piano keyboard to input notes that sound like whatever that sample can produces the 
a lot of these third-party plugins don't well I, what i should say i guess is that th there's an extremely rich ecosystem of them for desktop computing platforms that does not exist on ios and i don't know how deep in the weeds you want to get it about why this is but <laughs> um for for lots of developmental reasons we don't have things like uh you know like the contact sampler that i was just talking about like there's just nothing like that on the ipad um obviously this this comes back to this idea of like when you have something like Dorico, which is so much a similar experience on iPad to the Mac, then it all of a sudden becomes really frustrating if you are the kind of user who likes to customize the sounds of your instruments. Well, you go to play mode, and now if you are someone who owns a really, really expensive sample library of, say, like uh, like the Vienna, you know, they do their whole, like, um, symphonic strings. I forget exactly the name of it, but they have, like, professional orchestral string samples mm -hmm. that – and, and, you know, percussion samples that just sound – as realistic as you're going to be able to get a sample of the yeah. sound on your computer. And, and you, if you've paid for this software, which is thousands and thousands of dollars, and for all of these different libraries that contain gigabytes, terabytes even, of small little samples of what instruments sound like, yeah, on a Mac or a Windows device, you can plug in your favorite flute sound straight into the flute channel of Dorico in play mode, and you can get that sound. Whereas on the iPad version, you can still do that, but there's uh, a different plug-in protocol on iOS and it's called audio units, which is actually has more in common. I, I learned later after kind of experimenting with them that uh, they ha it has more in common with the version of audio units on the Mac than I had originally thought. Like it's not very difficult for a developer to make something that use, you know, the, an audio unit plugin that would run on iOS and the Mac. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that so much of this software was developed years and years and years before the iPad was even a twinkle in anyone's eye. So you have all of this old code, all of this, you know, I, would I like to believe that someone like Native Instruments is one day going to be able to make an iOS version of all of their software? Yes. Um, is that coming anytime soon? I don't think so. Yeah. You do have the, you do have the storage capabilities now with like two terabyte iPads, but yeah, the demand has to be there for them to see uh, a market for it, right? And then, Yeah. And then you've got stuff like there's a, a program called Note Performer, which is actually written to it's designed to be used with notation software on desktop so what it does is in dorico if you're on the desktop version and you go into play mode um you can actually uh they have this sort of default instrument library that but you know that is what the sounds are by by default but if you actually click on it uh you can you get a little uh, drop down menu where you can choose any one of the available software instrument plugins that is on your mac or you can use Note Performer. And if I do that, then basically what Note Performer does is it just already is aware, like that a flute is a flute, that a crash symbol is a crash symbol. So I don't have to go, like if I wanted to use samples in native instruments, I would have to go to each instrument of my score and then tell it which plugin to use. And of course, if I'm using something like Contact, then Contact has to be running a flute sampler inside of it, an oboe sampler inside of it, a violin sampler inside of it, a pizzicato sampler, all of these different samplers. And I have to basically manually uh, link each channel of Contact up to the correct instrument in play mode. Whereas Note Performer, you just choose it from play mode and then it just knows, you know, okay, now we're going to link your, your flute in Dorico up to our flute sound. We're going to link your oboe up to our oboe sound. We're going to link your timpani up to our timpani sound. And then it just, you know, yeah. makes your orchestra sound a whole lot better. Uh, and there's, of course, there's nothing like that on iOS. Either. Right. So while there are a lot of 
audio units, things that can be plugged into the iPad version of Dorico. It is, um, I don't know, it's something I, I don't see myself getting into too much because it just, it, first of all, I've paid for this stuff on the Mac and I don't want to pay for different software mm-hmm. that does the same thing on iPad. Uh, not to mention that there is not a whole lot of this stuff. On, I mean, there, <laughs> there's a lot of it. It's just that like how much of it is extremely good and worth your money is that's you know a different question yeah the market i think as i spoke with someone earlier on the podcast is really strong for synthesizers so if you're writing electronic music and writing a part for a synthesizer you could make that sound pretty great i think on ipad because there is a, i think a pretty healthy market for that as one vertical yeah korg has a lot of stuff that's on the app store and their, their apps go on sale from time to time and they'll you know heavily discount really really crazy synthesizers things that that work actually really well on the ipad because like if you can think of a modular synth all the different kinds of knobs (laughs) you would need to manipulate the sound i mean all of that just becomes now these knobs can just be you know directly manipulated with touch yeah and the i'd say like the easiest way for someone to experiment with audio units is to go into the garage band app on ios and then create a new track and then i forget i keep changing the name of it i forget what it's called now but it used to be called audio units and what it's going to do is basically create a new track, which links out to one of these third-party apps. The app, of course, has to be designed to work as a plugin. And then once you select it, then uh, the iPad sort of bounces you into that app. But if you go back to GarageBand, you'll see that a track has been created, which is named after whatever this third-party app is. Now, you don't have as much control over multitasking with Windows as you do on a Mac. So like you're kind of awkwardly like hitting the record button in GarageBand and then like sort of like swiping to the other app, hopefully in time to start inputting notes. And uh, (laughs) it's in many cases, uh, the ones that I've used are audio. So you have to be super precise unless you've got a MIDI controller plugged in. I don't know. It's for the same reason that I like to keep a lot of my other non-music software similar between the Mac and the iPad, just so that I have the same experience, the same data, the same my you know financial resource has been pumped into the same experiences on all devices it's just it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to to use this in the ipad version of dorico right and the built-in libraries are pretty decent for what i need sure yeah i I absolutely think they're good enough and you know there are some people who are trying to do a lot here like we've talked a number of times about staff pad staff pad is i think trying to if I could describe their experience outside of this whole like other people in the room having the reader app and sort of like pushing the score to those musicians, I would say like the two major defining features of StaffPad are that they're trying to really revolutionize the input and the output methods of score software. I mean, you've got like Apple Pencil only input. I know they're working on, um, as was announced at uh, WWDC last spring, they were in the keynote talking about a forthcoming feature where you'll be able to actually just play a, a real instrument from the external world <laughs> into StaffPad, into the microphone of the computer and have that yeah. generate notation. So like not even a MIDI controller that's sending a signal, but actually just play a real piano into the microphone and have StaffPad in real time write out the notes. Yeah, which Finale's done that for years, but it was never successful enough for me to rely on that. But if they can make that great... That could be cool. I think so, too. It's it's similar to the handwriting. We'll just have to see how it is in execution. Okay, they changed in GarageBand, by the way. Follow up here. Um, they call it now external. It's no longer called... Well, okay, so it's an external track, but then there's the audio unit extensions, and then there's inter-app audio. And I don't know that you want to necessarily get into the minor differences right. between what those two things are. But basically, this is how you would bounce out to a third-party app. Any app that uses the audio unit uh, protocol, it should be able to work with Dorico on iPad. But again, it's the it's the it's the fact that you know 
it's not going to be your same stuff. Like staff pad, just to come back to them, like their other way that I think that they're really challenging the the market for this kind of software on the iPad is that they have these really awesome sample libraries that are baked into the app as in app purchases. Yeah. Now this is this is super frustrating because they like I could buy a sample library made by Spitfire who makes exceptionally awesome instrument samples, but then I can't use those with anything other than StatPad. Unlike let's say the desktop version, whereas if I buy that sample library, I can use that in Dorico, Ableton Live, Logic Pro, GarageBand, anything that's going to work with software plugins. So yeah, I think StatPad prices it lower because of that fact, right? Yes, but it's still for me uh, not <laughs> something yeah. that I think I'm going to invest. Uh, in. Yeah, I get that. I'd love if there would be like an iPad app so I could create my own audio unit libraries to pump in the Dorico, like me, me myself playing saxophone and having, uh, that'd be cool as a concept. That's, that's like some next level tech you're, you're talking about there. <laughs> yeah. Like there's, there's font creators on iPad where you write out, you know, the different, here's capital A, here's lowercase A, but, uh, yeah, it, I don't know what is involved in creating sound libraries. I imagine it's a lot because you have to play all the different dynamics, all the different articulations. I imagine a very time-intensive process to get that right. Uh, yeah, I mean, like stuff like the Spitfire and like I was mentioning the Vienna sample libraries from earlier, th- the way that they do this is they they take a violin and they say, okay, w- we're going to play the note G now and we're going to record you playing G with these eight different articulations at these 12 or more different dynamic levels uh in these different styles with your, with the bow placed on these different parts of the string and then you're going to do that for every single note that the instrument can produce <laughs> as a musician that must do that be for... one of the most mind-numbing processes in the world to to do yeah i don't know i've never i've never been there i've never done it so yeah. uh it's got to be interesting for sure yeah for sure but it's for this reason that this stuff costs thousands of dollars to purchase and why it's all the more frustrating that you can't use it on all of your devices, especially when the notation software itself is so powerful on iOS. Yeah. I've got to believe that that logic, if it ever comes to the iPad, will have some sort of plug-in story to come with it. Because that's got to be one of the things that has held them up, is thinking about, mm. you know, that's a core part of the desktop experience of using a digital audio workstation, right? Right. Um, I, You know, I'm living in dreamland here, but it's like, you know, imagine logic announced on stage and like, hey, we've partnered with Waves and Native Instruments and a lot of these people who make, you know, not only sample libraries, but things like, you know, reverb plugins and equalizers. And, you know, we've got these three partners that are going to bring some version of their plugin to iOS and they're, oh, what if your license from the from the Mac even works? <laughs> iOS. I'm, I'm, this is like my pie in the sky dream. I think one day we'll have to, you know, I, one day this will have to be reckoned with, but I don't know that it's happening anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking uh, they do sell like MIDI saxophones. They're not cheap. They're probably like a thousand bucks or so. Uh, that'd be kind of an interesting input thing to have with Dorka. I'm sure that would probably work since it's MIDI and MIDI is MIDI. So. That'd be cool. MIDI is MIDI. Yeah. So, I mean, you can certainly use something like that to, you know, if you're going to feel like you're going to be more comfortable uh, rhythmically, you know, getting that into the system, that's absolutely the way to go. For me, it's it's piano. Yeah. Uh, I do I do have an Ableton push, which can be used, you know, it's a, an Ableton push is a grid of rubber squares that kind of adapt to what you need them to be. Now, of course, it's optimized for Ableton Live because you can control almost every feature of Ableton from this grid of squares. Um but it can also be used as a MIDI input device for other devices. And then to the left of my Ableton push, I have a Roland Octopad, which is eight drum triggers. And then it's got its own 
internal library where I can use it as an audio plug. You know, I can basically just use it as an audio track and record myself playing the audio samples from within the device, or the pads can be used to trigger uh, another software plugin. And another great example of one of these is called Superior Drummer, which is a drum set. It's like a suite of drum set, you know, very, very realistic drum set samples that I can plug into a Logic project or an Ableton project. And then I can play drum set parts on the Octopad and then sample, uh, you know, like some of them, I mean, they even take famous drummers and their drum sets into the studio and record specifically them with their sound, you know, so I can sound like this person or like this person, or I can sound like this person, but if their snare drum is just a little tighter than the way that they tuned it on that famous record or mm -hmm. with this crash cymbal from this kind of drum set and this snare drum from this kind of drum set. And a, instead of a kick drum, give me a cowbell. You can kind of go wild with it. And yeah, that's just something that does not exist on ipad yeah so anything else on play mode i know we touched on it uh, much earlier in this conversation about uh, it being more than just play mode but tweaking a virtual performance and even tweaking the notation if you want it to yeah i think that's more than enough on that subject okay. for someone to get started yeah and then uh the desktop app has a special printing mode which isn't on ipad but there are some different export options on ipad including the ability to print um any kind of notes on on these well i i'll just speak to the ipad version in that i think for me i'm not the kind of user who needs to produce these beautiful scores you know i'm not someone who is like uh taking a world premiere of a musical theater production and then typing it into dorico and then having like new revisions of parts for the musicians every day based on the conductor's notes like i'm not doing that kind of stuff so what these um, printing features offer are, you know, lots of uh, degrees of customization over how the thing that you've tweaked in engraved mode will appear on paper and print out. And I just, for me, I am not doing a lot of that. So when I saw on the iPad version that they had replaced the print menu with a sh simple share sheet, that works actually a lot better for my needs because it's weird it's weird but like on the mac version the print menu is where you go to export the file as a pdf or as an image and that is far more commonly the way that i'm dealing with my scores is by sharing them digitally so uh i appreciate that you just get a native well i won't call it the native i'm actually does it is it the native share sheet it does not look like the native share button in other apps but it, it is a box with an arrow sticking out of it yeah there's yeah and you can export as audio as well which is pretty handy yeah like exporting it as an audio file a midi file an xml or a pdf or just simply sending the output straight to the printer without doing any tweaking those are like very much so the only things i ever do in print mode on the mac yeah. so the fact that they're in this concise little share button is better for me yeah and then there is a read mode as well and i believe this integrates with those page turning pedals so you could use this uh to kind of perform your work if you wanted to yeah that's a that's a great thing to mention and i think that um something to note with with this kind of software and, and just software in general is like nothing can be everything no piece of software can do the best job at every task and I think it's important for someone like the Dorico team to say, hey, we'd like a simple way for someone to take all the visual noise of the tools off the page and just simply be able to flip through the score or one of the parts in a basic reader mode. And I think that's that's an essential you know, table stakes kind of feature to have in a notation editor. I'm glad that they did it. But for me, I'm almost always going to export the document as a PDF and put it in Fourscore because that is first and foremost where all of my music is, not just my Dorico exported projects, but it's also a place where I can have more degrees of control by annotating with the Apple Pencil 
where I can add metadata, where I can organize into set lists, where I can, to be honest, just like it's where my other stuff is. So there's, uh, I'm always going to take that extra couple of steps to export it yeah. and read it in Fourscore rather than keeping it in Dorico. Right. Yeah. So this has been a very lengthy discussion. Uh, for those that aren't in the music composition world, this is basically like everyone talks about Final Cut Pro coming to iPad one day. It's basically happened for the music notation people with uh, Dorico and Sibelius uh, coming to iPad. It's it's that kind of big of a deal, um, I should say. I agree, actually. So I, like I said earlier, I think that we're, musicians are lucky that we like our corner of the universe has received this level of software you know i mean sibelius and dorico both like these are you know these are both offering a lot of the core desktop experiences that people are used to uh and a whole lot of power i mean dorico bringing especially even elements of their engrave mode to the ipad version and all the playback features that we talked about earlier i mean that's that's a whole lot of power in an ipad app and for us to get it i mean it's it's on the one hand exciting and it's also kind of sad that apple hasn't done more in this space also (laughs) because like it makes you wonder like okay if something if like the entirety of the layout and notation options from the desktop version of dorico are now in an ipad app like how is some sort of version of final cut not on the ipad at this point <laughs> yes i don't know yeah it's it's uh, one day i would imagine apple will finally release that um we'll see what at what point would it would we have hit the point where you just don't think they're gonna do it anymore because <laughs> we're getting i feel like in another 300 to 500 days if there's no if there aren't any apple pro apps on the ipad i feel like they're gonna they have a longer out farther out story about how that's going to happen you know if the mac pro comes out and has the m1 chip or m2 or whatever and we're still waiting once the apple silicon transition is complete i don't know i, I feel like something with the m chip uh, will make this more simple for them to do but to speak to your point, I hope that other software developers in and outside of music take note of these releases because, you know, I I, I know that Sibelius and Dorico have, there's enough awareness of them, especially Sibelius, that companies like Ableton have to be looking at this and thinking to themselves, hmm, okay, like what could we do? Uh, and I know that there are various different limitations when it comes to, uh, you know, the kinds of things you would need to do with a digital audio workstation, some of which we really hit on, like the software plugin story it would you know, there would need to be some sort of way to better manage that on iOS for uh, one of those pro apps to really realize its true potential. But still, I, I wondered to myself, like, well, what, what about it, though? Like, why, why can't some basic version of Ableton Live run on an iPad that maybe has a more limited sample set, but that could be plugged into the Ableton push and thrown in a bag and taken you know, to a gig or something if you're a DJ? I don't know. These, these are the things I wonder. And I, and I hope that other software developers see Companies like Avid and, uh, you know, Steinberg and Dorico, Sibelius being the products. You know, I hope people see these achievements on iPad and, you know, rethink their iOS strategy. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, this has been a really fun discussion. I've been really looking forward to this because this is like, you know, 10 years in the making. I've been wanting this kind of software for 10 years. And we've had, you know, um, Notion Symphony Pro 5, which are both amazing apps. But this is just another league. This is this is the caliber app I have been waiting for. So, um, some I guess some closing thoughts. Uh, we have Sibelius and Dorico right now. Uh, Dorico is kind of where I found the most um, success for how I like to write currently, and maybe that changes when Sibelius adds MIDI keyboard support and all of that. But um, kind of some recommendations. Who would you recommend Sibelius for? Uh, then Dorico, and then pricing wise, you know. I'd say the free version of both of these apps are great places to start, especially if you add that uh, Steinberg account to get the four staffs uh, into Dorco. Yeah. 
um, you can get a really good feel for the features and the workflow of these apps in the free version, which is the, the cool thing, is that one of the most noteworthy limitations of the free versions is simply how many instruments you can have in your score. Uh, there's there's more than that. Yeah. But uh, ha- having a lot of the experience of the application be available in the free tier, I think would give any user a real good idea of it. And, you know, someone who wants to try Dorico, for example, um, might just be uh, an amateur pianist or a guitarist and someone who just needs to take down some ideas uh, on a grand staff every now and then and that this would be a perfect application for them to download and install the free version of and see if it's for them and then maybe they move to the free version of dorico on desktop se and they you know share their projects across devices uh and then if you're someone who needs more from it uh four or so dollars a month for dorico and then um the sibelius offer on the ios app store a monthly thing as an apple in-app they do they're, so that what they're doing is they're all they already had subscription offerings for their desktop apps before this iPad release, and so where they're coming from is, I guess for people who listen to your show who maybe are following like the iPad app ecosystem, like the Omni Group I know does this now, where they have um, this option for you to sort of just pay a monthly subscription for some of their apps, even the ones that have traditionally been buy it once and then keep it. So, you know, Sibelius has for long now had their Sibelius version. Uh, it's, it's a little confusing. So they, their first version of Sibelius, the free one is called Sibelius first. The paid tier is called just called Sibelius. Yep. And on iPad, that is $6 a month in-app purchase. So I, that is, even that is not so much that I wouldn't say like, hey, just, pay, you know, try it for one month yep. and see... If it works for you, uh, you know, you could pay. So for about 10 bucks, you could for a month, try both of these apps and see which one is going to fit your workflow better. Um, I do think that I would recommend Sibelius, obviously, to anyone who is just a diehard Sibelius user or has a long lasting history with it on desktop and doesn't want to relearn a lot of their workflows. Because as much of it has been redesigned for the iPad experience, there's still some really familiar UI elements, like having that little uh, keypad with the you know, uh, rhythmic durations on it is going to make anyone feel at home like they're using, you know. And all your files, of course, will translate right over. <laughs> and you won't even have to, you know, do any digging. Like if you're keeping your Sibelius files in something like Dropbox or iCloud, they're going to just all be accessible right upon the launch of the Sibelius app. So Yeah. And Sibelius Ultimate is uh, $12.99 a month on iPad. I'm not sure what the full desktop uh, subscription would cost if you go with that version. Yeah, I've got to look into that more. I'm So I'm not currently a Sibelius subscriber might now i well that's not technically true so my my school district covers the cost of sibelius for us i currently my the version that's authenticated through my school district is not currently on the computer that i use most often in school which is actually a personal mac but that's besides the point yes uh they are very very slightly different in cost um but for the price of you know um a movie ticket or whatever you can try both these apps and find out which one works for you i I would say dorico is for really anyone who's just um either inexperienced with this kind of software and is looking for a a little bit more power from maybe you're like someone who's used flat io or muse score or note flight and you want a little bit more power and control or maybe you've never used any of this software before at all i think dorico sits really nicely for people at all levels who are uh, interested in you know a really powerful notation editor yeah and I was looking on their website, Sibelius, as far as pricing. It's interesting. I think they might have reduced the pricing from their launch price already. Um, on their website, they say Sibelius is six ninety nine mobile app only and 10 bucks 
on the web, but I'm seeing in the app here, uh, $5.99. And then Spaylist Ultimate is 20 bucks a month if you get desktop plus mobile and then $12.99 just on iPad. So substantial savings if you just go with the iPad version um, of these apps for Spaylist. Yeah, totally. And I mean, if you're you know someone who's just living the iPad life, you're going to be super happy with the fact that either one of these programs can do the extent of the things that they can. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Scoring Notes podcast has some great interviews with uh, Sibelius people and Dorka people in your podcast, uh, which is... Yeah, Music Ed Tech Talk. And uh, I actually, so I've, I've got the two interviews with Daniel Spreadberry that I mentioned numerous times throughout this episode, but I also am going to have the uh, some of the members of the Sibelius team on in a near future episode to talk about the iPad release. So stay tuned for that if you want more on that. And uh, I'll also say too, this whole uh, change in the sort of like mobile landscape of this software has kind of like got me on a kick. Like I'm I'm currently, if you're a a listener or not to my podcast, Music Ed Tech Talk, I've got uh, quite a few guests over the next couple of months are going to also sort of be adjacent to this notation editor space like I, um, i'm talking with the staff pad people and um you know like there's just so much going on between music which we talked about and um, all the stuff going on with the muse group like my, my intention is to have a lot more coverage over what's going on in this space and as it relates to music educators in the near future very cool well thank you so much for all of the time this is uh the longest episode i think uh that this show will probably ever have um maybe not but yeah this is quite the marathon session and i appreciate your time in covering this very exciting news and what these apps can do for ipad users yeah it's been an absolute pleasure it's so much fun to like one of my favorite things about having you know any kind of you know my blog and my podcast are sort of like i don't know like internet megaphones for my ideas and the, the fact that um i get to meet cool people such as yourself who are doing very exciting things with software uh, and the same hardware that I am is awesome. And, uh, you know, I've met numerous people and done many, many collaborative online projects uh, with people who I've met just over Twitter or like who have emailed me, reached out to me because they read a blog post or something. And so this is like the one of the coolest things about putting my ideas out there is getting to like connect with people like you who I otherwise would have, you know, no connection to and then just getting to have great conversations like this. Yeah. And I discovered you through a retweet on Twitter. I'm not sure who retweeted it, but it's like, oh, it's really exciting. And then you mentioned Dorico. It's like, didn't even hear about Dorico. Oh, that's that's a really awesome app as well. This is such a reminder to me and maybe to anyone who puts anything out there on the internet. Like the the I, I'm, I'm getting better at being a shameless self-promoter of myself. And the truth is, is like as much as every time I like tweet an article I wrote or even like share an article I wrote a second time or answer someone's Facebook question in a Facebook group with a link to a podcast episode I did. Like every time I do that, I feel cringy. Like, oh no, I'm putting myself out there. And the reality is, is like so few people actually know what is you're creating out there as a creator that it's like, it's that persistent putting it out there. Cause I think I know the tweet. Like I, and what's funny is I had the whole, the whole Dorico post was like all like in the interview and the video were all like ready to go because I was one of, I think, other than scoring notes, I think I was one of the only people who had all that on like day one because I knew, you know, I was running the beta. I was kind of playing with it and just kind of like thinking through like the more I got into the process of playing with it, the more I knew it would make sense to like be a little bit 
a little, a little bit more formal right. about how I put together the the blog post. And so I did all that work, and then I had it available the day that Dorico launched, and it got some attention. And then the next day, I was expecting the Sibelius announcement, <laughs> but I didn't have access to the app, so... I just wrote a quick blog post like Sibelius is out one day later. Here's a link to it. It means this. And because, I guess because Sibelius is like such a well-known brand, that like short little blog post that I wrote, I think it got retweeted by Matthew Casanelli. Oh, that that's be, it. Yep. Been, that was, yep. Casanelli's doing. Yep. He, he would have to be the link between yep, us. Yep. Absolutely. Because, um, that was him. I, tw- I tweet shortcut stuff and he follows me there. And yeah, I mean, he, I, I bet would bet that he recognized even as someone who doesn't work, maybe he, maybe he uses Sibelius, but I would bet that he's aware of their brand and saw that and was like, Oh, I should put this out there. But, but it just speaks to the fact that it's like, we are doing super similar things on the internet and are, I would say both plugged into like similar types of like publications and podcasts about Apple products and software and the app ecosystem that sort of revolves around their stuff and um it's just so funny that it's like you have this composing background and like i am doing this thing like it's just it's funny that we didn't connect before and it just speaks to the fact that it's like you got to keep putting your stuff out there totally <laughs> eventually yeah totally yeah no and uh, yeah it's a good yeah I'm, thank you matthew matthew hasnelli it's a really good uh, discovery to uh yeah this has been a great chat too and we'll have to have another one at some point in the future as more of these yes billy has talked about these five big ipad updates that are coming and uh sure. maybe in like Two two years when all five are out and Sibelius is this transformed app into something just crazy, crazy awesome. A great foundation, but yeah, it's going to be a wild scene from here on out. Finally, let's wrap it up. Uh, where can people find your blog and all the other awesome stuff you are up to? Okay, so the website is RobbieBurns.com and that is just sort of like an online um, profile for me. It's got information about teaching private lessons, uh, just like bio, some videos, audio, um, pictures of me and uh i've got some other stuff like th- you know publications it's just it's just kind of like a, a front for what i do but musicedtechtalk.com is actually the url that gets people to the blog and the podcast episodes uh and it's all actually housed under the same website so you can get there from robbieburns.com or musicedtechtalk.com uh i would love it if people checked out the show you can of course listen to the podcast uh in any podcast app uh, I've got a book called Digital Organization Tips for Music Teachers, which is something we didn't talk about at all today, but it's like all of this like productivity stuff like document management, email management, note-taking, tasks, digital sheet music, um, managing your audio library, like all this organization-related stuff that is sort of packaged in um, you know a way that is going to apply to the use cases of a, of a music teacher. Um, oh, very cool. We'll have to dive into that. Uh, a, a later point <laughs> yeah 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 um it's uh yeah it's a it's a fun it was a fun project and um i would say too uh i've got a um like i, I actually think you do too i have a patreon for my show and my and my um for my show and for my blog now and people who want to get more connected with me and get some fun perks can support that i've got a discord server which is like the hot thing now is you know create a little community around that and uh, it's actually pretty lively people are always talking about this kind of stuff like music notation software um digital audio workstations lesson plan ideas you know there's a lot of music teachers in this crowd uh general like apps we recommend to each other music recommendations uh tech support that people need uh it's just a fun thing to do plus you get a bunch of uh the a bunch of my nerdier resources that i've created things like um you know, like I've made some OmniFocus project templates for the music classroom and uh, like some keyboard maestro macros and just some fun stuff. So I don't know if, if people who, who are into that want to uh, support what I do. That's my new thing I've been trying since uh, I think June I started it. Very cool. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've got a, a YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. I'm at Robbie Burns. 
most of those places and uh, Twitter is probably where I'm most active and then YouTube is something I'm doing more with but most of my YouTube videos are usually associated with or embedded in blog posts so if you just want to follow me one place uh, probably Music Ed Tech Talk is the place to do it sounds good well, thank you Robbie for your time it's been just a great chat it's been great yeah well, that's my discussion with Robbie Burns, all about Sibelius and Dorco and iPad. Check out everything that Robbie's up to at RobbieBurns.com, including his fantastic Music Ed Tech Talk podcast. My thanks to Robbie for his extensive time diving into Dorco and Sibelius, and my thanks to you for your time and attention tuning in. You can get bonus content and episodes early by supporting the podcast at Patreon.com slash iPadPros or by subscribing in Apple Podcasts. With that, I'll talk to everyone again real soon.